The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. John Wilkes Booth, the first man to assassinate an American president. The actor who killed Lincoln. You probably know he was an actor. But did you know he was a really, really, really famous, very successful actor? He wasn't some bit player in community theater. He wasn't some guy who messed around with, you know, Shakespeare in the park before getting back to his real job in a meatpacking plant when summer was over. Wasn't trying to land a commercial agent in between pizza delivery, you know, or bartending gigs. He was one of the most famous actors of his day. He was the leading heartthrob of his day. The son of the most famous actor of his father's generation. His older brother, Edwin, was the most famous actor of his day. Edwin is considered by many historians to be the most accomplished American actor of the entire 19th century. His only other brother, older brother Junius Brutus Booth Jr., was also a working actor. They were like the 19th century Baldwins. You know, if uh, Billy Baldwin had killed a president. Whereas Edwin was considered to have more mastery of his craft. One of his nicknames was literally the master. John Wilkes was considered to be more charismatic and handsome than technically skilled. He was especially known for his action scenes. He was a noted swordsman. He was a 19th century equivalent to today's blockbuster action star. Not going to win an Oscar, but going to move a shit ton of tickets. If Instagram would have been around in 1864, he would have had the most followers of any actor of his day. Legend has it, female fans once literally ripped his shirt off as he was leaving the theater after a performance. Women wanted John Wilkes Booth. Men wanted to be him. And then he killed the fucking president. And historians don't think mental illness played a part in his decision. Think about that. It's truly comparable to if, uh, like, you know, like Keanu Reeves or Ryan Gosling or Dwayne The Rock Johnson killed the president today. It's preposterous. It's outlandish. And it's true. Think of how crazy the media would go if something like that happened now. Anderson Cooper, Rachel Maddow, Sean Hannity, like their heads might actually explode. The story of the planning and the aftermath of Lincoln's assassination is nuts. Tragic in moments, comically stupid in others. And we're going to deep dive and suck this fascinating moment in history today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. 
Happy Monday, time suckers. Happy new week, meat sacks. Time to get shit right this week. Time to start fresh. Get out there, do great things. Get after it. Chase those dreams. But first, you know, uh, listen to this episode. I'm Dan Cummins, Grandmaster Suck, Lord of the Mushmouths. Tamer of Bojangles, kind of. Tamer of Lucifina, not really. Disciple of Nimrod. Yeah, for sure. And you are listening to Time Suck. Welcome or welcome back to the Cult of the Curious. Uh, great news. Time Sucker Larry Harrell's little girl, Mabry, is home and recovering very well from her heart surgery. Hail Nimrod! When Nimrod and Lucifina work together and guide her to continued health and an ass-kicking life. Now, if you'll recall, uh, a couple weeks ago, we sent positive thoughts her way, and maybe those thoughts helped. Love you, little Mabry. Larry sent Lindsay and I a pic, and she is adorable, and she's tough as shit. Open heart surgery at only five months old, and she looks like uh, nothing happened. It's incredible. Uh, quick note on merch orders. If you've ordered anything in the store since this uh, past Saturday, expect some delays. Sorry about that. Uh, we should be back on track with normal shipping times starting next Monday. Here's what's going on. Uh, we're moving to a new merch distribu- uh, distribution company, Axis Apparel, out of Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, and, and, and they're amazing. And Logan, the company's founder, owner, Jedi leader, uh, space lizard, etc., uh, huge time sucker, huge space lizard. Dude has time suck space lizard tattoos for real. He's fucking in. He's all in. Uh, and they print in house. They have a full time staff to get orders to you quickly. They do a lot of sourcing, a lot of behind the scenes stuff, uh, etc. Eric Radiker has been a machine, man. But Eric likes to specialize in smaller companies, help them grow, and he's helped us grow. He's helped time suck tremendously. So thank you, Eric. But Eric's a one man crew with a full time job uh, that is not, you know, merch distribution. And new products coming out. We're killing him uh, to get them out on time because, you know, there's more There's more of you guys now. More of you guys ordering stuff. You know, he was losing a lot of sleep, which I get. So it made sense for us to go to a bigger company, and and, uh, and we wish Eric the best. And if you're starting a podcast or you got a small podcast or a small business and you're getting into online sales, highly recommend Eric Radiker. He's a great dude, great customer service. He's a hard worker. And, uh, yeah, and, and we love him. So so uh, thank you guys for continuing to grow the suck. Man, we're just constantly trying to figure this out, how to uh, how to move forward in the best way, how to be the best little podcast business we can, get organized, get things right, you know, provide better customer service than you get because, you know, if you're familiar with my stand-up, you know I have no patience uh, for poor customer service. So it's weird being on this side of it and be like, oh, fuck, this is actually a lot of hard work to try, <laughs> to try and grow and keep everybody happy. But just know that, man, we it is a priority. We are doing our best uh, to get to get everything right, including the merch side of things. Uh, going to be able to make some real cool shit with Access Apparel and Danger Brain collaborating together. Uh, recording today's episode today. Had a great time in Dayton this past weekend. I uh, I love the diversity of time suckers that showed up. Clean cut and conservative, tattooed and liberal, tattooed and conservative. A lot of dudes, a lot of ladies, a lot of, a lot of whites, a lot of uh, not white meat sacks as well. And a huge range of ages. You know, and I love seeing that in the crowd, man. Our society, you know, myself in moments, you know, can be so ageist in particular. Act like people, you know, once they hit a certain age, they, they can't be fucking cool or creative or they're not fun anymore. What a bunch of bullshit. Your grandma might be twice as cool as you. My grandma Betty's cool as shit, man. I was dancing to Chubby Checkers on a record player in her house less than a year ago. She's got moves. She's got more rhythm than I do, which probably isn't saying a lot. And uh, and I also truly had a great time in La Jolla last week. I know I was recording uh, episodes in the past, so I was like, I think I will. Well, I did. Had a great time uh, everywhere lately. 100th episode of Time Suckers coming up soon. A lot of Time Suckers have written in asking if I'll do anything special for that episode. Maybe shake it up. Some of you uh, have suggested I I do like a drunk history kind of version. You know, like a drunk as fuck suck. 
is what some of you were calling it. And uh, after thinking about it, I like it. It's been a long time since I've been really drunk, and uh, I'm going to do it. And uh, and we've picked a weird topic to do uh, to make it that much more fun. The Axeman of New Orleans. Apparently, some dude just went around terrorizing New Orleans in 1918, 1919 with a fucking axe. And uh, he was never caught. And he would do weird shit like you'd write into the press and uh, demand that everyone play jazz loudly from their homes or they're going to get some axe coming their way. Uh, <laughs> just crazy. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a, a good excuse to do some old-timey voices, get weird, learn about some New Orleans history, and uh, be a big celebratory episode. Man, 100 straight weeks of uninterrupted suck. Going to celebrate by, by doing a drunk suck. So it's going to get weird. I hope you enjoy it. I'm very grateful. Uh, Flat Earth Tour rolls into Side Splitters in Tampa this weekend, August 2nd to the 5th. Uh, excited for that. Excited to see who shows up. And then I'm going to keep it Florida the following weekend. Palm Beach. Going to be there Friday through Sunday, August 10th through 12th. Uh, first time I'll be there. So ho- hopefully it's a good impression. Historic stand-up venue, Zanies in Chicago is next, man. A lot of shows in Zanies. August 15th through 18th. Doing three on Saturday night, which is insane. But it's a small club. Uh, n- no bad seats. It's like a little cigar box. Kind of 140. I think people fit in there. Something like that. Westward to Denver. The Comedy Works. The 23rd to the 25th. Then a new lifetime suck on Sunday the 26th. Going to build on what I learned during Orlando. And uh, and doing a topic that I won't release a studio version of, or at least a live version of, at least not this year. And by the way, I think I said on the secret suck, but sorry, uh, there was a sound fuck up in Orlando. Essentially, the sound booth guy, from what I understand, unplugged the recording device we were using, which sucks. So we lost all the clean audio for what I was actually saying and what Tom and Dan were actually saying. So sometimes shit happens. Fucking Lucifina, she, she got us. And, uh, and I will not be able to release a live version of that suck. Sorry, nothing can be done now. Um, but going forward, uh, I'm going to be doing a, a topic exclusive to the Lifetime Sucks. If you want to hear this topic, you have to come to one of the shows. I'm touring the rest of 2018 on the economic theories of Alan Greenspan. Why do we have inflation? How do you correctly interpret wage strength indexes? How do interest rates affect real estate pricing? How does you know that affect like the GDP growth or you know a contraction of the economy? It's very exciting. And get the fuck out of here. That's a terrible topic. For a live show, that's a terrible topic. Maybe for the studio version, sure. It would be good to actually learn some economic stuff. But not for the live show. I want you guys to show up. <laughs> Which is why the topic is the cold killings of Matamoros. Holy shit, is this weird and intense. Man, voodoo, drug smuggling, ritual killings. Uh, Adolfo Costanzo was the cult leader of a gang dubbed by the media as the narco-satanists. Narco-satanists, that's intense. And his cult ritually killed at least 20 people, maybe around 100, near the U.S.-Mexico border in the late 80s. The dude ritually sacrificed people to make potions out of their blood and body parts. He killed people because he thought it, it let him, uh, you know, uh, bring about some, like, demons and entities and, and use some black magic spells that would protect the drug smugglers from the authorities. Like, for real. Uh, he thought he could make people invisible. And they thought he was able to make them invisible. It's, fu- it's insane. One of his disciples led police to his hideout because the dude literally thought Costanzo had made him invisible, went right past the police blockade, and just acted like they couldn't see him. Acted like they had no, <laughs> no idea he was there, and they just followed him right to the hideout and then caught him and found a bunch of bodies. And they were living on black magic and cocaine. It's going to be a wild ride. Uh, they were apparently doing the most coke, which is how much coke you have to do to think you're invisible. I'll be sucking on this madness in Denver, Tacoma, Portland, Grand Rapids, and other lifetime sucks that I've, I've forgotten or are coming down the pipe. More stand-up flat, tour, uh, flatter, uh, flat earth got tour dates also. Uh, just, uh, you know, dancummins.tv. You can find all kinds of stuff. Now, let's get 19th century. Let's get into a tale as twisted as a Tarantino flick and suck 
on the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. All right, we're going to save today's timeline for the planning, execution, and aftermath of Lincoln's assassination. Right now, I want to set the stage by starting with an explanation of who the Booth family were. I didn't know any of this, probably because I went to school in Riggins, Idaho, and I don't, I don't know that we had a history class in high school. I know that sounds insane, but I, I, I don't remember a single history class in high school in Riggins. Maybe Mr. Updegrove taught one. If he did, I'm guessing we covered one, maybe two topics, and then he just gave up. <laughs> I hope that school is better now than it was in the 90s. Anyway. John Wilkes Booth, he's born May 10th, 1838. He was named after the radical 18th century British journalist and politician John Wilkes, whose ideas about the British Constitution being subverted by corrupt politicians directly influenced the planners and leaders of the American Revolution. Uh, the, the ideas of the original John Wilkes helped shape the American Constitution, especially concerning free speech. So as someone who says a lot of crazy outlandish shit for a living, uh, thank you, original John Wilkes. And it's important to note that Due to his namesake, John Wilkes Booth may have, uh, you know, been more aware than most about how important certain liberties were, like like free, like free speech. And, and he might have been more affected than most by someone taking those liberties away, which Lincoln did. And we'll cover that later. Uh, Booth was born in Bel Air, Maryland, where he was known as, of course, the Fresh Prince. Now, this is a story all about how his life got flipped there and upside down. I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. I'll tell you how John became the prince of a town called Bel Air. In Maryland, born and raised in the woods was where he spent most of his days. Chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool, and all riding some horses too from the school. When a couple of guys who were up to super duper good at acting got famous in his neighborhood. Then he got in one little play and his mom got scared. She said, I think we have a famous actor in Bel Air. I know that was fucking cheesy. But it didn't stop me. I pushed through. I heard that song so many times as a kid. Of course, he was not the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Uh, and if you're like, what is happening right now? If you somehow don't know, just because of your age or whatever, yeah, there was a little show called The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air that Will Smith uh, was a big part of. All right, but he was in Bel-Air, Maryland, is, uh, this guy. Bel-Air is a rural area, booth time, an area settled way back in 1780, but not incorporated until 1874. And I just want to say, not easy. Uh, as, it, as it turns out, to sing those songs when you don't have music. That's tricky. It's tricky. I was trying to get a tune in my head, but I was like, oh, man. Okay. Only around 10,000 people live there today. It's, uh, it's 66 miles northeast of D.C. Only a few miles further than that puts you in Virginia, uh, one of the states that would secede from the north and join the Confederacy during the Civil War. So, And that's weird to me, man. Richmond, Virginia, uh, just over 100 miles south of Washington, D.C., would actually be the capital of the Confederacy. And how strange is that, man? Capital of the Union, capital of the Confederacy, only 100 miles apart. That seems bad for war. Uh, so John was raised as a northerner. He lived amongst uh, free African-Americans during his youth. Uh, he was also raised near the heart of the Confederacy. And uh, John's father was the reputable Shakespearean actor, Junius Brutus Booth. His mother was Marianne Holmes. He had an idyllic country childhood. Uh, for the most part, he spent some time in Baltimore, too, but they spent a lot of time out there in Bel Air. As a child, he was athletic and popular. He was good with horses, rode one to school. He was accomplished at fencing. His family was famous. His father had grown up in England and gained fame initially as a sword juggler. Now, prior to Junius, there were, there were only records of jugglers juggling like pins, balls, other kind of harmless objects. Junius added both a sword and a unicycle to the show. And then uh, shortly after attaining some fame for circus-like kind of, you know, his act, juggling swords, you know, sharp, sharp objects, was actually outlawed in England because of him in a way. Uh, several performers he influenced who didn't share his talent and skill impaled some unlucky audience members. And one lady actually died in, in Highland Park. 
Uh, it also eventually became illegal to juggle anything while also unicycling after a toddler was run over in Covent Garden. So uh, uh, the phrase, don't run with scissors, morphed out of the original phrase, which was don't unicycle with swords, which morphed out of another much later saying, uh, Dan Cummins is a full of shit lunatic. No, John Wilkes' father, Junius, never attained fame on a unicycle uh, <laughs> or juggling swords. God, I wish he did. But he, be- he became a renowned Shakespearean actor. After becoming involved in British theater around the age of 17, 1821, already famous in England, 25-year-old Junius uh, immigrated to the United States with Marianne Holmes, this, this London flower girl he left his wife for. He had a child with his first wife, but he, uh, he left them behind. This original family he abandoned would eventually seek him out in the U.S., kind of create a minor scandal around him, but uh, there would be some blackmail attempts, that kind of stuff, but, but never actually seemed to affect his career. Uh, Junius bought 150 acres in Maryland, Bel Air. His family, well, his new family, uh, lived in a log, log cabin there. And within a year, he became America's most widely known and sought-after stage actor, specializing in Shakespearean tragedies. Uh, the famed poet Walt Whitman was a big fan. He toured all over the eastern seaboard, take his, take his new family to Europe for theater tours. Junius toured relentlessly for years. And many years after his death in 1991, uh, he was inducted into the Theater Hall of Fame. So, so John Wilkes grew up with a, with a very famous father, and then his older brother, Junius Jr., born in 1821, when Junius Sr. just barely made it to America, also became a working actor. And then Junius, his, uh, his brother, you know, married a, a noted actress, Australian immigrant, Agnes Booth. Uh, Junius Jr. Was, was also 17 years older than John Wilkes. So John would grow up never remembering a time when his father and brother weren't working actors of, you know, noted actors. And when, and he, when he wasn't surrounded by other actors in the theater scene in general. Man, Junius Brutus Booth. What an odd name, right? His dad was supposedly named after Marcus Junius Brutus, one of the men who killed Julius Caesar in Shakespeare's tragedy. So apparently John Wilkes' grandparents were, were big theater fans as well. Like, you don't, you don't name your kid Junius Brutus if you want him to become like an accountant or a banker or a doctor. Uh, clearly a very dramatic family. Uh, brother Edwin, five years older than John, made his stage debut with his father when he was 16 years old and John was 12 uh, in early 1850. The family upgraded from living in uh, that log cabin to a stately home known as Tudor Hall, also uh, on their Bel Air property around that time. That home is still there and on the National Register of Historic Places. Uh, the family was able to acquire a second home uh, due to their success in Baltimore, and they'd split time between Baltimore and Bel Air for part of uh, Booth's childhood. Man, the Booths, balling in Maryland, making that 19th century theater money. Uh, pretty impressive, actually, because as hard as it is to make money as an actor now, I bet it was harder back then. Less, less ways to make money. Fewer people, you know, uh, were able to pay their bills through acting. You know, it was live theater or it was fucking nothing. No film, no TV, no host-driven reality television, no voiceover work, commercials, spokesperson shit, no, no YouTube fame. No, it's live theater or nothing. And, and then in 1852, when John was 14, his father died from a fever, probably ill from drinking uh, river water near Cincinnati. Damn river dysentery water. Remember that from the Donner Party suck? You probably heard McGill's pop shortly before he passed. You know, probably blew his butthole clean off. Just, oh, God. And then, then he's gone. Uh, by the age of 16, John Wilkes had decided to join the family business, began working on his monologues, speaking voice, studying Shakespeare daily. Uh, Booth made his stage debut at age 17, August 14th, 1855, in the supporting role of the Earl of Richmond and Richard III at Baltimore's Charles Street Theater. Charles Street Theater. Uh, early on, he wasn't the best actor. He had a problem memorizing lines. Oh, I have a terrible memory. I, I can relate. Uh, 1858, he acted in the play uh, Lucrezia Borgia. 
And when it was time for him to go on stage, yeah, he fumbled his first line. This would have been great to see, saying, Madam, I am Petruccio Pandolfo. <clears throat> Madam, I am Pandolfio Pet, Pandolfio Pat, Pan, Pantuccio Pet. Damn it, who am I? And I guess the audience <laughs> had a good laugh at his expense. Uh, I relate to that way too much. Uh, even early on, though, when he was not a, a good actor in a technical sense, he was captivating. American critic journalist Jim Bishop wrote that Booth developed into an outrageous scene stealer, but he played his parts with such heightened enthusiasm that the audiences idolized him. He had that it factor, man, had that star factor. Also in 1858, he became a company actor at the Richmond Theater in Virginia, where he became increasingly popular with audiences for his energetic performances. And and this is important to what will happen later. Uh, You know, because while John Wilkes' father had attained fame primarily in states that would later be Union states, New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, uh, he even successfully toured California with John's brother Edwin, John would attain his most fame in the South and, and with Richmond audiences in particular. John, uh, John's brother Edwin, you know, also became more famous in the North and the South. South loved Johnny Wilkes Booth, JWB, big in the Sweet Tea States. Uh, also, it's important to note that John Wilkes loved tragedies, and his favorite character to play was Brutus. Right, Brutus coming up again in this. You know, this character was somehow part of like family lore. The man who would kill Julius Caesar, the man who would overthrow a tyrant. And let's examine his favorite role for a bit because it says a lot about him. Uh, it'll it'll be revealed later that his obsession with this role directly motivated his decision to kill Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Caesar is beloved by the people of Rome, but abused in his power. Cassius plans on killing him, but Brutus isn't so sure about joining the conspiracy. Then Brutus and and Cassius hear that Caesar refused the crown three times when Mark Antony offered it to him because Caesar hoped the crowd would beg him to take it. But actually the people were thrilled that he didn't want to be king, which makes Caesar mad because he totally wants to be king. He's, He's got a huge power boner. He's sporting some big old crown wood. Got that throne wood rocking his shorts. Rocking his toga, I guess. He wants He wants to be a tyrant. Uh, the conspirators meet. They show Brutus some letters that approve of their plan, which are forged, actually, by the conspirators. Brutus finally decides that he has to kill Caesar in case Caesar becomes king because uh, then he'll hurt the people of Rome. And then they do kill Caesar. They all agree that they've killed Caesar for the good of Rome, but Mark Antony delivers a speech that turns public opinion against the conspirators, and they have to flee. A lot of stuff happens, including a battle with Caesar's adopted son and Mark Antony, but in the end— Brutus is about to be outnumbered and commits suicide. But when Mark Antony finds Brutus's body, he calls Brutus the noblest Roman of them all. Because Mark Antony believed Brutus was the only one truly acting in the best interest of Rome. So, the favorite role of John Wilkes Booth is that of a man who conspires to kill the leader of his country and, and then is later revered for doing so as a selfless hero. And this speaks to, to JWB psyche. Speaks possibly to how he saw himself in his later role of assassin. Uh, another interesting thing to note is that while, while uh, previously attending boarding school as a teen, Booth met a fortune teller who told him he would die young and meet a bad end. Uh, she said he would break hearts, but there'll be nothing to you. You'll die young and leave many to mourn you. You'll make a bad end. Young sir, I've never seen a worse hand and I wish I hadn't seen it. But if I were a girl, I'd follow you through the world for your handsome face. Okay, uh, weird fortune to get. That's fucking terrible. Look, good news. You're super duper handsome. Like, God, you you make me, I'm a guy, not into dudes, but fuck, man, I just keep thinking about how if I was a girl, I would totally follow you to the ends of the earth. Which, you know, it's kind of my way of saying, why don't you bone me right now? But you're also going to die young. That's the bad news. You'll be dead soon. But you'll have a, you know, fucking good run. Well, yeah, apparently this bothered him for years, really stuck in his head. Uh, He worried about, you know, this, this fortune being right. 
Uh, and yeah, and again, man, what a, what a bummer. Uh, I, w- I wonder if some fortune tellers give fortunes like that to people they don't like. Right? Wouldn't it be tempting to do, to do that? I, I, like, I feel like, I wish I could say otherwise, but I feel like I might do that if I was a fortune teller. Like you have some customer coming who's being a real asshole. Uh, how tempting would it be just to give them the worst fortune? Oh, man. Ah, bummer, Michael. I'm not, I, I can't lie to you. Future is looking horrific for you. You have no more than two years left to live, and there's nothing you can do about it. Someone in your family is going to kill you, from what I can tell, but I, I, I don't know who. But I, I do know it's going to be real bad, like very painful. It's going to take a long time to play out. After you die, this is where it gets worse. A lot of bad stuff is going to be found on your, on your computer hard drive. Like a, a so, so much bad stuff that the name Michael Salter will become synonymous with disgusting pedophile. I, I, I wish I could tell you something else. People are going to say stuff after you die. Like, did you hear about Charles getting arrested? Man, apparently he was Salter some kids from the neighborhood down at the community pool. So, uh, yeah, do you want to pay by uh, cash or credit? And uh, there's, there's no point in you sticking around any longer. It's just, I don't know. You, knowing what I know about what's going to happen with you going forward, I don't even want to be around you right now. Uh, Booth's fortune teller was right about the handsome part, man. John Deary, owner of Booth's favorite billiard parlor and close friend, said of Booth, John cast a spell over most men, and I believe over most women. As he talked, he threw himself into his words. He could hold a group spellbound by the hour with the force and fire and beauty that was within him. Uh, some critics actually called him the handsomest man in America. I looked at all pictures. He is a good-looking dude. Uh, he stood out among his contemporaries for both his looks and stage presence. A lot of his acting involved leaping on tables, you know, again, the scene-stealing, kind of stomping around, captivating audiences. He had tons of charisma. Uh, Walt Whitman once said he would have flashes, passages, I thought, of real genius. The Philadelphia Press said he had less culture and grace than his brother Edwin, but more natural talent. And his brother Edwin probably said on at least one occasion, man, fuck John. I'm a better actor. I try harder. I fucking take it seriously. Pretty boy can't even remember his lines. Uh, by the Civil War, John Wilkes was starting to make good money uh, for an actor, for anybody at that time. He's making $20,000 a year, which translates to over $500,000 a year in today's dollars. Uh, he just booked his first national tour as a leading actor in 1859. Tour would last into 1860. And then on April 12th, 1861, the Civil War kicks off. And, and Booth, who had fallen in love with the South by this point, was, was unlike anyone else in his family, openly in favor of the South. Uh, he publicly called their secession heroic. He was an open advocate and supporter of slavery. He was very against uh, abolitionists. Uh, he believed that slavery was actually good for Africans because it introduced them to Christianity and to God's glory. I'm not kidding. Holy fucking rationalization. No, 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 no. No, this is good. This is good. Look, it, look, if these people weren't put on boats and taken from their homelands and separated from their families and whipped and beaten and literally worked to death in many cases, forced to live in tiny, overcrowded sheds, constantly worked, you know, and treated like uh, subhuman animals, they wouldn't get to know God's love, would they? This is good. God wants them to be whipped and worked to death. It's his will. That's how you get to meet Jesus. Yes, Jesus loves you. Yes, Jesus loves you. Now get them back to work before I fucking whip you some more. What a strange, strange species we are. Like the stories we tell ourselves to make our lives acceptable. It's uh, endlessly fascinating to me. Uh, but anyway, Booth had been spending more and more time in the South the past year or so. He'd fallen in love with it, which, which I do get. Outside of the whole slavery situation, the South has a lot of charm, has had a lot of charm. You know, the culture of the South, 
has a lot more to do than just, you know, the decision to have slaves. Uh, it has a real gone with the wind kind of genteel life vibe to it, or at least, it, you know, used to more from what I understand. Still has remnants of that today. You know, I, I, I love the South, man. I love doing shows in the South. Uh, I do feel there's a little more cultural emphasis on manners, civility, behaving a little more properly down there, which you know, if you listen to my stand-up, that I don't mind. Uh, Southern bells, Southern gentlemen, real thing. I love a little decency. Don't act like an animal out there in public. Uh, When Booth uh, publicly proclaimed his love for the South and the North, not well received. Uh, When the Civil War broke out, he's performing in Albany, New York, and and he so publicly professed his love for the South that some citizens demanded he be banned from stage or even arrested for treason for openly pro-Southern views. Nevertheless, despite his political opinions, uh, his career as an actor grew during the Civil War, above and below the Mason-Dixon line, sold tickets everywhere he went, also received fan mail from admirers admirers, uh, daily, especially from women. Doesn't mention uh, this in any of my sources, but considering he was young, single for most of his touring, I feel like there may be a variety of people out there today who are the descendants of, of, you know, of affairs that he had where he illegitimately fathered children. I have no proof of that at all, whatsoever. But come on, actor... Handsome, hit with the ladies, touring, get the fuck out of here. He was, ah, uh, he was living it up, I, I would think. And check out this bit of random cool trivia. November 25th, 1864, Booth performed for the only time with his brothers Edwin and Junius in a single engagement production of Julius Caesar at the Winter Garden Theater in New York. He played Mark Anthony, and his brother Edwin had the larger role of Brutus in a performance acclaimed as the greatest theatrical event in New York history. And then the proceeds went towards a statue of William Shakespeare for Central Park, which stands to this day. I've seen it myself. Uh, still looks good, man. Still looks like Willie. Oh, Willie S. Had no idea John Wilkes Booth, murderer of Lincoln, helped fund that particular statue. How weird is that? Uh, meanwhile, while continuing to have career financial success during the war, personally, John Wilkes is really beginning to struggle morally. Uh, he's grown angrier by the day with Lincoln. He's starting to see him as a tyrant. And based on the, the that love he has for Brutus, you know, we know how he feels about tyrants. And Lincoln, to be fair, is starting to do some tyrannical shit. Uh, when the war broke out, Lincoln enacted martial law in many places, including John Wilkes' home state of Maryland, a border state, suspended the writ of habeas corpus, which required that a person be brought before a judge or court, especially for investigation of a restraint of the person's liberty used as a protection against illegal imprisonment. So Lincoln can now arrest anyone for any reason. Not have to prove anything. Just throw whoever he wanted in jail. And Booth saw that, you know, is the action of a tyrant. And again, it is the action of a tyrant. But I get why Lincoln didn't or did it. You know, it's what he needed to do to win the war. You know, in times of war, if you really want to win, odds are you're going to have to be a little uh, ethically flexible, right? You're going to have to allow some uh, theoretical ethics here and there to take a backseat to realistic needs. I hate it when people get worked up about certain things in war. It's like, yeah, it's fucking war. Of course, it's not going to be all, you know, proper and, you know, no civilians are ever going to get hurt and everything is going to be perfect and there's going to be no collateral damage. When does that fucking ever happen? Like it's it's the chaos of war, uh, you know, and as long as you get to win, you get the right history. Isn't that how it works? You get to be the good guy if you win. Um, well, because of what Lincoln accomplished, you know, uh, we now view him as almost saintly, you know, historically. But in order to accomplish what he did, he took away a lot of freedoms, you know. Uh, you know, if, if suddenly you could be thrown in jail for saying you don't like the president, would you consider the president a tyrant? Of course you would. Would you be a big fan? Of course not. And and many outside of Booth did see Lincoln as a tyrant. Many despised him during his lifetime. We forget that now. You know, so many that he was very concerned about winning re-election in 1864. Highly doubtful at times. And actually for a while, it looked like he wasn't going to win. 
but then, you know, the North won some key uh, victories, and, you know, uh, against the South, and that kind of paved the way for, for actually him winning in the landslide. But it wasn't just the South who hated him. A lot of Northerners, you know, were starting to get tired of the war and starting not to like what was going on as well. Uh, also in 1863, Booth is arrested in St. Louis for making a comment that he wished the president and the whole damn government would go to hell. He's only released after he makes an oath of allegiance and pays a substantial fine. This definitely fuels his view of Lincoln as tyrant. Lincoln has become his Caesar for sure by now. Uh, November 9th, 1863, a family friend of the Booths opens the 1,500-seat Ford Theater in Washington, D.C., and Booth was one of the first leading men to appear there, playing in Charles Selby's The Marble Heart. I love this historical detail. One of the first leading men to perform in the theater where he would later kill Lincoln. And Lincoln, a few years before his death, did watch Booth perform there. Uh, watched him perform in that opening play. Lincoln Lincoln watched a lot of shows at Ford Theater. It's less than a mile from the White House. In that first play, Booth portrayed a Greek sculptor in costume, making marble statues come to life. Lincoln watched the, the play from the presidential box. And at one point during the performance, Lincoln stood up, uh, took his shirt off, and asked Booth to suck his nipples, which gets left out of every single historical text I have found because that never happened. But fuck, that would have been amazing. Uh, can you imagine... <laughs> Just feed upon me, Booth. Take your handsome face. I don't know why he's Scottish right there. Put it on my nipple. Did you know Lincoln was Scottish? I didn't until I just did that voice. Um, so at one point, no, during the performance, Booth was uh, said to have shaken his finger in Lincoln's direction as, as he delivered a line of kind of pointed dialogue. Uh, Lincoln's sister-in-law was sitting there in the same presidential box and turned to him and said, Mr. Lincoln, it looks as if that's meant for you. And the president replied, he does look at me pretty sharp. Or, no, he does look pretty sharp at me, doesn't he? Uh, so they had a little interaction, you know, uh, a long time before the assassination. On another occasion, Lincoln's son, Tad, his young son, Tad, saw Booth perform at the Ford Theater, said the actor thrilled him, prompting Booth to give Tad a rose. Uh, but then Booth ignored an invitation to visit the Lincolns between acts. Uh, hates the president so much, refuses to meet him. Uh, Booth starts having some problems with his family around this time as his brother Edwin starts refusing to tour at all in the South. They quarrel over their very political views to the point that John Wilkes gets banned from Edwin's home. Uh, you know, I've talked to, uh, to a lot of you about how the uh, current political climate has divided, you know, families. Uh, I feel like it's getting better, but, but definitely that's gone on the last, you know, couple of years. Well, you know, maybe there's some small consolation in the fact that uh, this isn't the first time this has happened in our country. Uh, and then shit starts to get real crazy for Booth in 1864. As the 1864 president's presidential election drags on, the chances of a Confederate victory are starting to look pretty slim. And after, again, those few key military victories in 1864, such as uh, Union General William T. Sherman, uh, Tecumseh Sherman taking Atlanta from the south on July 22nd, it, it seemed uh, like it shouldn't take that much longer to secure a Union victory, and, uh, and that victory directly helps Lincoln get reelected. Booth's internal struggles continue. He wants to take a break now from acting to actually fight in the war on behalf of the Confederates. But he promised his mother he wouldn't join the army. And he hated himself for making that promise. He wrote to his mother towards the war's end, I have begun to deem myself a coward and to despise my own existence. Here he is, playing the roles of brave men who fight for their beliefs on stage, battling other actors in mock swordplay, while other men his age are actually risking their lives for what they believe in. So he comes up with a way to redeem himself in his mind for not joining the fight earlier. He comes up with a plan to sell replica swords, give the proceeds to the Confederate cause, and then he finds out there's not a big market for swords. He overestimated it. Uh, but there is a big market for tiny plastic swords that people use to stick through martini olives or hold little meat and cheese bundles together on appetizer trays. So 
Booth starts making tiny swords, and you can still buy them today on eBay. An original set of Booth cocktail swords will set you back around $3,500, and you can only buy them from Bojangles. And he's not selling any because he used them to pick his teeth after meals and because they're not real, and none of that is true. But listen to this. Booth does want to redeem himself for not fighting in battle. Uh, Initially, he formulates plans to kidnap Lincoln. This is before the assassination plot. Uh, His original plans include kidnapping. He's going to kidnap Lincoln from his summer residence at the old soldier's home, three miles from the White House, smuggle him across the Potomac River into Richmond, Virginia. Once in Confederate hands, he thinks that Lincoln could be exchanged for uh, Confederate Army prisoners of war held in northern prisons. And Booth reasoned, you know, this could bring the war to an end by emboldening opposition to the war in the north or by forcing the Union to, to recognize the Confederate government. And while this may sound crazy, and it certainly was, it wasn't actually that far-fetched of an idea to be able to kidnap Lincoln. The Secret Service did not exist in any form until 1865, and they didn't begin offering full-time protection to the president until 1902. You know, it was kind of up to the president's discretion if they wanted somebody to kind of guard him or not, you know. Uh, they, they would start guarding the president full-time following the assassination of another president, President McKinley, in 1901. Uh, he was assassinated in 1901, and then they, you know, they offer it in 1902. Uh, Lincoln would sometimes ride alone in between the White House and the old soldier's home, totally alone. He's a fucking, he's a president of the Union. There's a war going on with other Americans living just a few miles away, and he'd just hop into the carriage and just go for a little stroll. Hard for me to imagine, but it happened. To me, that, that's like seeing Trump cruise by uh, on a Harley when you're out. No bodyguards, no Secret Service. You know, can you imagine that shit? You know, you're just, you're just walking around D.C. I don't know. You're going to get some fucking Jimmy Johns? And then fucking Trump just scoots by in a Harley? <laughs> like back in Lincoln's time, presidents would just walk into bars. They'd just walk into restaurants and stuff with, without being guarded, you know? It's so, so strange. Uh, I'll have a gin and tonic, and the president of the United States will have a whiskey sour. And we'd like some nachos for the table. Uh, hi, I'd like to be put. Uh, I'd like our name to be put on the waiting list. Party of two for the goddamn president of the United States. Twenty thirty minute wait. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, Booth's kidnapping plot takes us directly into today's time suck timeline that will lead to both his arrest and to Lincoln's death. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Did I say arrest? I meant death for both. You knew that. That's the part of the story you already know. Uh, he's kind of arrested. Uh, he wasn't alive when he was arrested. Uh, okay, January 18th, 1865, John Wilkes Booth, two co-conspirators, first planned to kidnap Lincoln on January 18th, 1865. Yep, it was a plan they'd been discussing since August of 1864. I've been thinking about it for a while. Booth had abandoned his thoughts to take Lincoln from, his, from the old soldier's home. And now his plan is to attack Lincoln in his box at Forest Theater on January 18th, tie him up, and, <laughs> and this is real, and then lower him down from the balcony to make a quick getaway. Yeah, just no biggie. Just tie him up. Just lower him down, you know, like something you'd see an idiotic villain do in a, in a cartoon. You know, you didn't get a chance to test this Ask 9 plan because Lincoln changed his plans at the last minute, opting to stay at home instead of going to the theater on a stormy night. And because his co-conspirators thought it was like a really stupid plan. Like they were openly like, dude, what? I've, you've gone mad. I'm not going to lower him from the balcony by a rope in the, in, in the dark and just let some other guy, you know, just walk him on out like that's not going to get us all caught and killed. Uh, the original co-conspirators were two childhood friends cursed to grow up near this maniac. Uh, one was Samuel Arnold. Samuel Arnold uh, was born in Washington, D.C., September 6, 1834. The Arnold family later moved to Baltimore, and Arnold attended St. Timothy's Military Academy where he was a classmate of John Wilkes Booth. 
And then there was Michael O'Laughlin, born in Baltimore, Maryland, 1840. Uh, one of John Wilkes Booth's earliest friends, uh, as the Booth family had a home just across the street from the O'Laughlins in Baltimore, you know, when they weren't in Bel Air. Um, despite it being a really dumb plan, Booth still wanted to try the kidnap- <laughs> kidnapping plan again a few months later, this time on March 17th, uh, when Lincoln was supposed to attend an- another performance at the theater. Uh, he met again with, you know, uh, his conspirators, actually more co-conspirators this time to discuss his plan. Met with six men. And again, everyone thought it was crazy. You know, just uh, let me get this straight. You you want us to somehow quietly sneak up on President Lincoln in the balcony, quietly somehow tie him up while also keeping anyone who may be with him also quiet, then lower him via a rope to the stage in a theater with hundreds of Union soldiers and Union sympathizers and then just and then just whisk him away. Just just nothing to see, everybody. All part of tonight's performance. Looks I know looks looks like the president, doesn't he? <laughs> oh, remarkable what the house wardrobe and makeup department can do. Big hand, big hand for the theater, big hand for the wardrobe uh, department. Yes, uh, I'm going to drag this random actor who is definitely not the president backstage before he gets loose and, uh, and he starts talking some crazy talk. <laughs> yeah, he just yeah, Booth actually wanted to do that. He thought that would work. Uh, he said. One of you will turn down the gaslights, and the theater will be plunged into darkness. And then Lewis Powell will get into the president's box. He'll be the one who's going to subdue Lincoln, tie him up, and then lower him to the stage with a long rope in the darkness. And then another conspirator, you know, his buddy Sam Arnold, uh, from, <laughs> old, old friend from childhood, scoffed at the audacity of the plan, saying, You can be the leader of the party, but not our executioner. Adding, It's madness beyond measure. And then Lincoln's travel plans, you know, they change again. The plan's tossed out for a second time. Uh, and, and who are the additional four conspirators that weren't part of the first kidnapping plan? One of them is Lewis Powell. Lewis Powell was born eight, uh, April 22nd, 1844, Randolph County, Alabama. 1861, when the Civil War breaks out, he volunteers as a Confederate soldier. And then Powell fought in the Battle of Gettysburg. Was shot, taken prisoner, taken to a hospital in Baltimore where he escaped and enlisted in the Virginia Cavalry, 1863. Uh, eventually left the Cavalry, took the oath of allegiance to the Union on January 13th, 1865. Went to live in a boarding house in Baltimore that was being used as a front by Confederate spies. Because towards the war's end, uh, kind of throughout the war, and then for a little while after the war, actually, uh, there was this underground Confederacy, you know, in the in the North. There was there was spies and double agents. Uh, around this time, 21-year-old Powell meets uh, John Wilkes Booth through a fellow member of the Northern Confederate underground, uh, John Surratt. Now, Booth saw Powell, who was 6'1 and well-built with black hair and blue eyes, as a strong co-conspirator in his plan to kidnap Lincoln. And Powell would soon regret ever getting involved with Booth on any level. Uh, and Surratt, John Surratt was born on April uh, 13th, 1844, Washington, D.C., District of Congress Heights. Soon after his father died in 1862, Surratt became postmaster of the small Maryland town of Surrattsville, uh, first settled by his family. By 1863, Surratt was working as a Confederate secret agent, carrying messages to Confederate boats in the Potomac River, Sending uh, messages to about Union troop movements in Washington, uh, in the Washington area south to Richmond. And a man who will enter our tale uh, here soon, Dr. Samuel Mudd, Dr. Mudd, introduced John Surratt to John Wilkes Booth on December 23rd, 1864 in Washington, D.C. And then 21-year-old Surratt joined the conspiracy to abduct President Lincoln in 1865. Uh, there was also a 30-year-old George Azerot, born in Germany, June 12th, 1835, George had immigrated to the U.S. in 1843, and if this was so, some sort of heist flick, like the usual suspects, uh, George would be the fuck-up character. Uh, he'd be like the Stephen Baldwin character. During the Civil War, Azeroth helped Confederate agents, including John Surratt, cross the Potomac River. Surratt uh, invited Azeroth to Washington, where he stayed for a time at Mary Surratt's boarding house until he was evicted for drinking alcohol in his room. Fucking booze, man. George's drinking is going to show up again in today's suck. 
in, in January 1865, George is introduced to John Wilkes Booth in Washington, D.C. by John Surratt. Booth persuades him to participate in his plan to kidnap Lincoln and then hold him in Virginia in exchange for those Confederate POWs. Uh, finally, and then there's also uh, 23-year-old David Harold. David Harold was the sixth of 11 children born to a chief clerk at the Navy store in the Washington Navy Yard in 1842. Worked as a pharmacist assistant and as a clerk for a doctor. He was an avid hunter, became acquainted, acquainted with John Surratt while attending classes at Charlotte Hall Military Academy in the late 1850s. December of 1864, Surratt introduces him to John Wilkes Booth. And, you know, and then this meeting will uh, lead directly to his death less than a year later. And then also worth men- mentioning here is Mary Surratt, who would also later be found guilty in conspiring in Lincoln's assassination. Mary was John Surratt's mother, who was somewhere between the ages of 42 and 45 in 1865. Hard to say how much she contributed to the plan, if anything. She, uh, she owned a few properties, including a boarding house in Washington, D.C., uh, where these guys would meet up and have their little uh, secret, you know, plans and discuss them and all that stuff. Okay. March 4th, 1865, still unable to kidnap Lincoln, Booth attends Lincoln's second inauguration in D.C. Uh, Booth was able to get very close to Lincoln on this day. Within a few yards, he was able to attend the inauguration uh, as he was a personal guest of Senator John Parker Hale's daughter, Lucy. Lucy happening to be his girlfriend at the time. She apparently uh, did not know how he felt about the president. And, And on this day, Booth got close enough to lunge at Lincoln. had to be restrained by police. He explained that he had simply stumbled, but then later mused, in his diary, what an excellent chance I had if I wished to kill the president on Inauguration Day. Uh, not sure if he actually had any real plan to do anything with Lincoln that time. I don't, it doesn't sound like it. Too many people around to take Lincoln. And if you really did want to kill him that day, you know, why not bring a gun? Guessing he just got angry. It was just kind of a heat of the moment thing. Got angry when Lincoln got close to him and just impulsively moved towards him. Because uh, by this time, I mean, he, I mean, very, very much despises Lincoln. Also, in hand-to-hand combat, Lincoln might have kicked Booth's ass. Uh, Lincoln was 6'4", athletic, JWB, athletic, but like uh, 5'8". Lincoln was an accomplished wrestler as a kid. Uh, He wasn't the wrestler the internet says uh, he was. He wasn't body slamming dudes from coast to coast. Wasn't like, you know, carrying intercontinental belts around on on his shoulder. But he did win some matches as a wrestler in his youth. Um, Booth would truly want to start to kill Lincoln the following month. On April 11th, Booth shifts his goal from the kidnapping of Lincoln to his just outright murder. With the fall of uh, Petersburg and Richmond and the Confederate uh, leader Lee surrendered to Grant at the uh, uh, Potomax or Appomattox, Appomattox, fuck, geez, uh, courthouse on April 9th, Washington was consumed by celebration. On the eve of April 10th, 1865, a crowd of some 3,000 people gathered outside the White House, hoping for, for some rousing words from the president in response to their cries of speech, speech. Lincoln demurred, saying he'd deliver an address the following evening, had to, had to prepare it. And then Lincoln prepared a speech that would be his last public address, very carefully, beginning his speech on April 11th on a joyful note, saying, We meet this evening not in sorrow, but in gladness of heart. The evacuation of Petersburg and Richmond and the surrender of the principal and surgeon army give hope of a righteous and speedy peace. And then he promised a day of national thanksgiving and proceeded directly to remind the nation that it now faced a task fraught with great difficulty. Well, the former, formerly jubilant crowd falls silent. Lincoln delivers his remarks. Most of Lincoln's speech dealt with specifics about the recently uh, established free state government in Louisiana, which Lincoln hoped could serve as a model for other former Confederate states during Reconstruction. He spoke of economic independence for recently freed Southern African-Americans and, uh, and about how they should be granted the right to vote, amongst other rights, you know. And, uh, and this talk really pissed off John Wilkes Booth. Uh, he declared this would be the last speech Lincoln would give and he would be right. And he and some of his co-conspirator, underground Confederates, they form another plan. And this time they actually are going to give it a go. And and, and why are are these other guys going along with Booth's plans? 
Well, partly because they are also Confederate sympathizers who do hate Lincoln, but also they probably went along with it because Booth was a big star who they admired greatly and they didn't want to disappoint. You know, the rest of these guys are, are not known on any level in society. Like, like you might not be interested in murdering anybody, right? But what if Ryan Gosling suddenly just became like one of your best buddies? It's just you, you and the guys, right? Hanging out, going to bars. You're in Ryan Gosling's inner circle now. You can't believe it. You've never known a, a truly famous person before. Your other friends are jealous as hell. Just, man, how, why are you hanging out with Ryan Gosling? You know, and you can be like, well, you know, we actually, you know, we grew up together for a while. Or, uh, or you know, I just met him through some friends. You know, he's hella cool, which is how these other guys get involved. You know, they just meet him through Surratt. Uh, you're showing up at a premiere of one of his movies. It's awesome. You're meeting other stars. It's like, dude, dude, are, are Penelope Cruz and Selena Gomez in the fucking hot tub right now? Yeah, I guess so. You know, J-Lo was just back there a second ago. Amy Adams just left to get her swimsuit. She'll be back. I mean, how cool is that, right? But then what if like a few weeks later, Ryan is like, man, it's been fun. It's been fun hanging out, right? Love you guys. You guys are awesome. Hey, I need to ask you a favor, though. Uh, I need you to help me kill a president. Look, look, I can get into his dinner club. I can get past security, and I'm going to pull the trigger. I just need you guys to do some other shit for me. Like, hopefully you wouldn't still go along with it, but star power is a real thing. Truly affects a lot of people. Like, you know, you might want, you might not want to help him kill, but, you know, if it wasn't for him, you wouldn't have been in the hot tub when Amy Adams took off her top. So he feels like, you know, kind of it's fair to pay him back. Partly, again, these other conspirators also hated the union. Um, uh, yeah, like I said, but they, but, they, but they probably wouldn't have actually tried to kill Lincoln if it wasn't for this handsome, charismatic, convincing John Wilkes Booth character. Okay, so now let's get into the actual assassination plan right after sponsor time. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. You will love the adventure of learning new things. I know you love the adventure already of learning new things. That's why you listen to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod. And that's why, you know, you're going to love watching and listening to The Great Courses Plus. Now, The Great Courses Plus lets you explore fascinating topics, learn from award-winning experts about anything that interests you, like ancient history, astronomy, psychology, uh, how to take better photos, how to, how to bend more effectively with yoga, how to, you know, special HD TED Talks. They have over 10,000 lectures to watch. Uh, you can stream them, download them, more being added all the time. You can watch, listen anytime, anywhere with the Great Courses Plus app. That's what I do. Uh, this week, I recommend the Great uh, Courses Plus course on Abraham Lincoln, right? 12 total lectures presented by Professor Alan C. Guelzo, professor of the Civil War, uh, Civil War era at Gettysburg College. He knows his shit. And I recommend you start with the last lecture, actually. The last one is, is about Lincoln's vision for America. It involves, you know, the assassination. And it's, uh, it is, uh, you know, inspiring. And it's the perfect course to get started with. Uh, or if not that one, fucking pick any of the other great courses plus wonderful lectures. And you get a special limited time offer of a full month of unlimited access free for being a time sucker. To get this free month, you must sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com. Last time, so I get that free month. Link in the episode description. And I do appreciate the emails people have sent in here recently uh, talking about signing up and talking about how glad they are at having done so. Uh, okay, we're back. We're back into the day of Lincoln's assassination. April 14th, just three days after the speech that enrages him, John Wilkes Booth decides to kill the president of the United States. Right, so weird. Again, try to picture Tom Hardy making that decision. He's going to go on the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon to promote his upcoming film, Venom. He's going to try and schedule on the same day that Trump will be there so they can shoot him and then run out through the audience. Like, this is that level of crazy. Uh, and if you're thinking again, yeah, but, you know, but different because a lot of people really don't like Trump and people love Lincoln. Well, remember what I said earlier. You know, way more people love Lincoln in death than they did in life. 
Lincoln was feeling great on April 14th, better than he had in years. General Robert E. Lee had surrendered the last significant Southern army to the North just five days before. There would be a few Confederate holdouts that would still, you know, officially on the books be at war. The last group of troops surrendering on June 2nd when General Edmund Kirby Smith signed surrender terms for the Confederate troops west of the Mississippi. But for all intent and purpose, the war is essentially over. Four long years of fighting, almost four years to the day, have come to a close. Lincoln and his wife, Mary, have two living children, both sons. Uh, their other two children, also both sons, have died in childhood. Uh, little Eddie died in 1850 at three of what they called consumption, but as, uh, historians probably feel it was cancer, actually. William Wallace, a.k.a. Willie, died during the war from, from typhoid fever. He was 11, 1862. Uh, their son, Tad, would die at the age of 18 in 1871, six years after his father, of consumption or, or possible uh, genital, congenital heart failure. Ironically, their only son to fight in the Civil War, Robert, is the only child who would survive into old age, living until 1926, dying at the age of 82. Uh, he would only fight in the last three weeks of the war and in a non-combat role because his mother, Mary Todd, begged Lincoln to spare him from battle, pleaded, uh, we have lost one son and his loss is as much as I can bear without being called upon to make another sacrifice. Lincoln was a tough son of a bitch and he actually argued that his, his son should fight, saying, our son is not more dear to us than the sons of other people are to their mothers. And poor Mary Todd, she saw her husband and three of her four children taken uh, long before she was. After her son's Tad's death, actually, she would uh, not surprisingly sink into a deep, dark depression, begin mentally unraveling to the point that her remaining son, Robert, had in, had her involuntarily committed to an asylum. Uh, yeah, to an asylum. Uh, poor Robert, man. His father taken while well, he was in childhood, all his brothers dead while he's still a young man. And then he has to put his mom in an institution. Uh, she'd soon get out, you know. Uh, you know, and, uh, but putting her in caused the two not to speak again until shortly before her death, uh, years later. Tragedy, man, so much tragedy around Lincoln's. But on the morning of April 14th, 1865, things were looking good. Uh, things were, things were, you know, feeling right. The future's looking bright. And, uh, which she, again, since we know how this ends, it's going to be sad. But Lincoln and Mary, they were both looking to the future that morning. Lincoln's aides and cabinet members recalled that he'd woken up feeling lighter than he'd felt in years. This is the day he gets assassinated. Looks better. Has more color in his face. Looked like a weight had been lifted off his shoulders. Lincoln and Mary that morning take a carriage ride together, just the two of them. Talk about what life might be like when, they're, when they return to Springfield, when politics is all over. Mary would later recall that Lincoln said, Mary, we've got to try and be happy now. Our future is ahead of us. And then others would recall that he would add, JK, one of those actors is going to shoot me in the head tonight. Crazy, right? <laughs> OMG, FML. Uh, no, that never happened. Uh, they felt like they had made it, though, through the toughest time of their lives, and then hours later, Lincoln would be dead. Meanwhile, that same morning, Booth had slept in. Lazy actors, man. Just Lindsay low-handed it up around town, then crashed until whenever you happen to wake. Sounds like much of my life in my 20s and some of my 30s, actually. Uh, after rolling out of bed, Booth made his way to Ford Cedar to pick up his mail. The owners let him have mail sent there, you know, whenever he was in town. While he's picking up his mail at Ford Cedar, someone there mentions that President Lincoln will be coming to that evening's performance. And then another onlooker would recall that Booth then left the theater in a hurry. He immediately decided he needed to kill Lincoln that night, and he raced off to put a plan in motion. Once Booth knew Lincoln would be at the theater that night, he had roughly eight hours to finish up his plan uh, and get it going. So first he masturbated. He was like, uh, you know, be gone, Lucifine. I don't have time for this right now. I don't have time for your thoughts. I have work to do. But then he masturbated one more time to make sure he was focused, but he overdid it. And that made him sleepy, more sleepy than he intended. And he took what was supposed to be a short nap. He woke up three hours later and that almost ruined the whole plan. And it may have contributed to him later breaking his leg, which probably led to him getting caught. He later wrote in his diary, 
If only I would have forsaken my second afternoon pleasuring of my swollen member. My sweet release rolled into golden slumber, and when I awoke, I felt not rested, but hurried and hastened to my movements. Surely I would have left with more grace, agility, and balance if I had but retained the extra vigor of my wasted seed. Uh, that also, of course, never happened, but was so great if that was part of the real story. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't that be great if high school history teachers had to try to navigate that tale, you know, <laughs> in their classroom of just sexual landmines in front of all those hormonal teenagers? Oh, man. No. After the theater, Booth goes right to the stable where his horses being kept, make sure it's ready to be you know, ridden. Allegedly, he stops to see Mary Surratt, possibly to have her round up the other conspirators. Historians disagree about how much she knew about the actual assassination. Uh, some think she may have only uh, thought they were going to kidnap it. But anyway, Booth, uh, he checks his Derringer pistol, makes sure it's ready to fire, puts together a travel kit full of belongings he'd need on the road once he escaped. You know, he had plotted out escape routes, you know, before this uh, day, back when he was doing the kidnapping plans. Uh, Booth then returns to Ford Theater early the afternoon. And yet that afternoon and, and walks up to the president's box where the president would be sitting and watching the uh, watching the play. And he carves a mortise uh, in which he could later place a stick of wood to bar the door from anyone entering. So behind the, the actual little door to the booth, he, he creates this little puts a stick there, hides a stick, creates this little mortise so he can block people from coming in once he's inside. Uh, and then he meets his accomplices at a nearby restaurant, he informs them of a plan that not only includes the murder of the president, but also I didn't know this. The murder of the vice president, Andrew Johnson, and the secretary of state as well. I assumed he wanted them uh, also dead to throw the governmental leadership into chaos, you know, because, you know, the vice president takes over for the, if the president dies. I assumed that maybe the secretary of state would take over if the vice president dies, but that's not true. Uh, what's interesting about the secretary of state choice is that it didn't fit with the line of presidential succession in 1865, which is actually slightly different than it is now. If the president dies, vice president takes office. But if the vice president is to die, then the president uh, it's, it's, it's pro uh, tempore, pro tempore, tempore of the Senate takes over. And if he dies, it's Latin, it, it would be the Speaker of the House of Representatives. In 1866, Secretary of State would be added to the list as the fourth one down. And the Speaker of the House and President pro tempore ha, have been flip-flopped. And what is the president pro tempore uh, of the Senate? And again, sorry if I'm not hitting that word right. Uh, I wrote it phonetically. I listened to it many times, and my brain was like, nah, nah, we're not going to care about that word. Uh, the vice president is technically the president of the Senate, but isn't actually, of course, an elected senator, can't always oversee the Senate. So the Senate picks a senator to act as president of the Senate when the vice president is not around. And that's the president pro, uh, pro tempore of the Senate. Uh, pro tempore literally means for the time being. Uh, currently, this position is held by Orrin Hatch, Republican senator from Utah, Random trivia, Hatch has been a senator since 1977. Holy shit. Longest serving Republican senator in U.S. history. Dude has been in the Senate since Jimmy Carter was president. And I got to say, he looks good. Uh, he looks like he takes care of himself better than I do. Probably eats less Doritos, probably drinks less Red Bull. Impressive. Uh, so why did Booth want the Secretary of State killed? Well, first off, first off let's remember he's not acting rationally. He, he just wants to hurt the North now. The war is essentially over. The motive for his original kidnapping, you know, to kind of negotiate things uh, for the Confederate government doesn't make sense anymore, right? Uh, after, not after the surrender of General Lee. He has to understand that on some level. He's not a fool. He's angry, and he wants to inflict pain on the Union and the fans of the Union that in his mind have caused – well, not in his mind. They have caused so much pain to certain people in the South. Secretary of State uh, William Seward was also a strong figure for the North during and before the Civil War who was staunchly anti-slavery. He's a big abolitionist. Uh, so, so Seward was a determined opponent of slavery, uh, and the spread of slavery for years before the war. He, he actually was initially the favored candidate for the Republican nomination for president, 
and the 1860 election that Lincoln won, but he, he became so vocally anti-slavery that the party didn't think he was electable. Uh, leading up to the Civil War, he was also very vocally anti-secession. So basically, he just represented everything that Booth hated. And Booth sees these men uh, as true tyrants, as oppressors of the South. And um, again, to be fair you know, to Booth, the Union was pretty brutal in their treatment of the South, uh, like in some respects, especially with their belief in total war. If you know that term, uh, Union Army General William Tecumseh Sherman's infamous march to the sea from Atlanta to Savannah, Georgia, for example, in, in November and December 1864 was uh, was part of this total war plan where you destroy the resources required uh, f- for the South to make war. So when you go through to a town, you don't just, you know, get rid of all the enemy troops. You also destroy, like, all of the food. You burn down anything that could be used to, like, manufacture weapons of war, even if it's, like, civilian property. Uh, you, you you ruin roads, you, you blow up bridges to, to try and destroy the Confederacy's economy and its transportation networks. You burn plantations to the ground. You know, uh, countless civilian homes were destroyed. There was a lot of collateral damage. Family businesses gone. Families destroyed themselves. So if you're a Southerner or some with Southern sympathies, it, again, easy to see how you'd feel a little bit of like, man, fuck these guys at the war's end. So at this restaurant, Booth tells Lewis Powell, that 21-year-old, well-built, former Confederate cavalry member he'd met through John Surratt that, that, he, that he is to murder the Secretary of State, William Seward, that night. And Booth tells George Azarot that he is to murder the Vice President, Andrew Johnson. They would have, they'd have liked to have gotten more guys, but they just weren't in the city. You know, like General Grant, they would have liked to have gotten him, but he wasn't around. But these are, these are, the, these are the guys who are around that they, uh, they know their whereabouts and they feel like they have a good chance to kill him. Uh, let's just really just cause their government to fall into anarchy is, I guess, maybe part of his hope. Around 8 p.m. that evening, April 14th, uh, the Lincolns set out for Ford Theater. They pick up a friend of Mary's, Clara Harris, and her fiancé, uh, Corporal Henry Rathbone. More on Rathbone later in this suck. What a very strange, twisted post-assassination story he's going to have. Uh, other more, more noted guests had turned them down that evening, such as House Speaker Shuler Colfax, uh, who had to depart for California a few days later, and General Grant. Uh, whose wife wanted to visit family in New Jersey. Uh, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton also was supposed to be there, but declined because he felt like public appearances at places like the theater were dangerous, unnecessarily dangerous. He had been urging Lincoln to stop doing that, stop going to the theater, stop taking just, you know, carriage rides by yourself, stop making other unguarded public appearances. He'd been trying to get him to stop for months, if only Lincoln had listened. Uh, 8.30 p.m., Lincoln and his wife and guests arrive at the theater, you know, 30 minutes after the play has begun. Uh, begun. The play was a popular comedy, Our American Cousin, the plot based on uh, the introduction of an awkward, boorish, but honest American uh, to his aristocratic English relatives who are horrified by his lack of manners, you know, when, he's, uh, when he goes to England to claim the family estate. It uh, doesn't sound terrible, actually. Uh, they arrived with no guards, no entourage, no fanfare. The president on the winning side of the fucking Civil War shows up like he's a banker, just finished up work for the week. I, I just, uh, how times have changed. Uh, again, that's, that's comparable to like if you went to the movies and you're standing in line for popcorn and then suddenly notice that Donald Trump and Melania are just standing behind you with no secret service in sight. It's, it's just it's cartoonish. Uh, it's so ridiculous that this went on. Around 9 p.m., like how did they not think this could backfire horribly? Around 9 p.m., John Wilkes Booth rides up to the back of the theater on his horse, leaves his horse with a stagehand, enters the theater through the back door, walks onto the stage, out into a side alley, heads into the nearby Star Saloon, Star Saloon uh, a popular little saloon for people who, uh, you know, at the theater to have drinks. William Withers, the orchestra leader, also snuck out for a drink while Booth was there during a break. And uh, saw Booth standing at the bar in his shirt sleeves, his coat thrown over one arm. Booth was uh, the first person he met. Withers recalled someone made a joke at Booth's expense 
And then he recalls seeing an inscrutable smile flit across his face, and that Booth then said, When I leave the stage for good, I will be the most famous man in America. All right, uh, roughly uh, 10-15. Actually, that quick note, there are some historians who think that part of the motivation Booth had was he wanted to be more famous than his brother. Mo- a lot of other historians don't believe that, but I guess it's just worth pointing out because it's a, it's a theory that part of his motivation was like he was sick of Edwin getting more attention than him. He's like, I'll fucking, I'll, get, I'll show him. I'll kill the president. That'll, that'll be the most famous. Um, I don't know about that, but possible. Uh, roughly 10, 15 p.m., Booth heads back into the theater, this time entering to the front, walking past the ticket office. Unbeknownst to anyone working there, he's got a large hunting knife, single-shot Derringer pistol hidden under his dark suit. Walks near the entrance of the box of seats where the president is watching, uh, listens to the play. Uh, he's trying to time his assassination attempt to one of the play's more popular jokes. Uh, when Booth goes to enter the anteroom outside the presidential box where Lincoln sits, he finds Charles Forbes, the president's 30-year-old footman, valet, messenger, occasional babysitter to Tad, servant, etc., sitting there. Booth hands Forbes a business card explaining who he is, and that gets him into the box with the president. Charles has no reason to prevent one of America's most famous actors from stopping by to visit the president. Booth then heads inside the vestibule, leading to the box, expecting to encounter security, a man named John Parker, a resident bodyguard. He's nowhere to be found. Historians disagree over why he wasn't there. Uh, most of what I found sound like he's probably just out grabbing a drink. <laughs> Again, security, very lax. Booth closes the door to the vestibule behind him and, and uses that stick and mortise combo he created earlier to lock the door so no one could come in after him. He's doing it. He's really going through it this time. He was one door away from President Lincoln. He walks up to the door looks through a peephole, and listens to the play. He listens to actor Harry Hawk on stage, waiting for him to deliver the biggest laugh line of the production, uh, which is, well, I guess you, uh, wait, wait. It's, uh, well, I guess I know enough to turn you inside out, old gal, you sock dologizing old man trap. Seriously, that was, that was the line. That was the line that brought the house down. Uh, I'm sure in the context of the play, it was absolutely hilarious. You suck an old man trap. <laughs> he said it. He said it. Sock Uproarious laughter fills the theater. People love that old sock joke. Booth opens the door, points the pistol at the back of Lincoln's head, fires at point blank range, the bullet entering Lincoln's skull. Corporal Rathbone swings towards the sound of the gunfire, and then Booth, no stranger to, uh, to fighting from all of his hours of stage duels, swings his hunting knife down upon him, slashes him from shoulder to elbow. Booth then immediately turns away from Rathbone. In the confusion, swings his leg over the balcony balustrade. And then one of his spurs gets tangled up in some American flags people had put there that afternoon after he scoped it out to to decorate the balcony. And he falls awkwardly to the stage, breaks his left ankle. Then operating on pure adrenaline, he pops back up, yells to the crowd. Audience members would later disagree over what, you know, they heard him shout. Many heard, Sic Semper Tyrannis, which is Latin for thus always to tyrants. Others heard, the South is avenged. Uh, Maybe he yelled both. Would have been funny if he'd also yelled, who put the goddamn flags up there? Or, uh, oh man, I really fucked up. Uh, Is it too late to say uh, sorry and just forget this happened? (laughs) YOLO, just JK. Uh, Booth then quickly staggers on his broken ankle towards the wings of the theater. No one in the general audience knows what the hell is going on. It's pandemonium. People are trying to figure out, you know, if this is part of the play for a few moments. Then someone yells, the president has been shot. Someone stop that man. But it's too late. Booth has already bolted past the stage scenery, out the back of the theater, hopped on his horse. He's galloping away in the darkness. Meanwhile, also at 10.15 p.m., co-conspirator Lewis Powell is knocking on the door of Secretary of State Stewart's mansion. When a servant opens the door, he tells him he's there to give William Stewart some medicine. Seward does, in fact, need medicine. 
He's in bed recovering from a broken jaw suffered during a carriage accident recently. On the stairs to William's room, Powell is encountered by Frederick Seward, William's 34-year-old son. Frederick insists that Powell give him the medicine. Powell obviously doesn't have the medicine, and he pulls out a pistol, tries to shoot Frederick, but it misfires. Then he pistol whips Frederick, instead runs past him into William's room where he finds William's daughter Fanny sitting by her father's bed. Don't meet a lot of Fannies anymore. When's that name coming back? When is someone going to name their twin girls Fanny and Gertrude? How much will those girls hate their parents? How much lower are the odds uh, they'll become pregnant as teens with those, uh, you know, (laughs) unattractive names? Apologies to Fannies and Gertrude's listening. Anyway, Powell tosses Fanny aside, jumps on the bed, stabs and manages to slash the Secretary of State in the face and neck five times before a soldier assigned to guard the Secretary jumps on the bed, forces Powell off of it. One of his slashes cuts Seward's face with enough force to actually remove part of his cheek. However, because of how Seward's jaw has been wired from the carriage accident, the knife is deflected and barely misses Seward's jugular vein, and although he loses a lot of blood, he lives. Powell then flees back down the stairs, stabbing a messenger on his way out. When he gets outside, David Harold is supposed to be there holding his horse, but he's gone. Harold had panicked and fled when he'd heard screaming inside the house, leaving Powell to have taken off on foot. Okay. Also at 10.15, George Azarot, supposed to be killing Vice President Andrew Johnson. Johnson is staying in the five-story Kirkwood House Hotel, located a short walk from Booth's, uh, from both Ford's Theater and Seward's residence, where he had intermittently stayed uh, you know, since just before his vice, president, vice presidential inauguration in March. Azarot had rented a room in the same hotel and had rented it under his own name, like a jackass. Uh, hi, I'd like to rent a room near Andrew Johnson's room, please. And what's the reason for your stay? Murder. I'm going to try and murder him. Name is George Azarot. A-T-Z-R-O-D is in dumbass. T is in trying to murder Vice President Johnson tonight. Uh, by 10.15, George is hammered. He'd been drinking in the bar with Kirkwood all evening, hoping to build up enough liquid courage to do the deed. Uh, but, you know, he fell either a few drinks uh, short or a, a, a few drinks too many. A few drinks, when, when a few drinks passed, depending on how you want to look at it. Johnson sleeps above him, alone and unguarded. But instead of taking his knife and gun upstairs, Azarot checks out of the hotel, wanders drunk around town for hours, bounces around from some other bars, checks into another hotel at 2 a.m. Next morning, he pawns his gun, sets out for a cousin's house in Maryland. Unaware that investigators had already found a second gun and knife, he left in his room at the Kirkwood house, as well as a bank book belonging to John Wilkes Booth. They would tie him to this whole, you know, conspiracy. Whoops. Uh, meanwhile, back at Ford Theater after Booth escapes, a young surgeon is the first theater guest after Booth to enter the presidential box. He cuts open Lincoln's clothes looking for a wound, not sure at this point if he's been shot or stabbed in the pandemonium. He initially can't find a wound or any blood. Uh, they do uh, feel like this is not the place to try and treat Lincoln. The surgeon and others carry Lincoln's body, his still-living body, out of the theater, across the street to the Peterson boarding house, into a back bedroom, lay him on a bed. The doctor then finds a small bullet hole behind Lincoln's left ear, but no exit wound. Unable to extract the bullet, he declares the wound mortal. Uh, Here is the autopsy description of this wound. Uh, The ball had entered through the uh, occipital bone about an inch to the left of the median line and just above the lateral sinus, which it opened. It then penetrated the dura mater, passed through the posterior lobe of the cerebrum, entering the left lateral ventricle and lodged in the white matter of the cerebrum just above the interior portion of the corpus strictum where it was found. So... Maybe, unlike me, you know what more of those, uh, you know, what more than like five of those words mean. thought I'd throw that in there for you people who understand medical terms. Lincoln's various cabinet members are informed of his condition. They rush to the Peterson house. 
takes hours for Lincoln to die. He actually wouldn't die till early the next morning. He continues to breathe, and witnesses say he actually looked peaceful as he lay in bed. His wife, Mary Todd, not peaceful, absolutely hysterical, pleading with him to wake up. He, of course, does not. Cabinet member and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton takes charge of finding Lincoln's killer. Uh, I'm sure Stanton had some version of, I fucking told you so. I told you so. This is exactly why I didn't want you to go to the theater alone, just on a repeat in his head. He orders arrests to be made, witnesses to be questioned, bridges in the area to be closed, etc. No one else knew what to do initially. It was an unprecedented situation. Something like this had just never happened in American politics before. At 11.30 p.m., John Wilkes Booth, meeting up with David Harold in the Maryland countryside, uh, who, while he didn't stick around with, you know, for Powell with the horses, at least he didn't mess up this part of his role. They pick up rivals and a bottle of whiskey from a country inn owned by a fellow conspirator, uh, Mary Surratt, head towards Virginia and towards possible escape. Booth's adrenaline is now starting to fade, starting to give way to pain from his broken ankle. He knows he needs medical attention, and they race to the home of country doctor they had met prior when they were planning the whole kidnapping escape route, Samuel Mudd. Uh, Mudd lived about 17 miles from Surratt's Inn. Now, due to a lack of moonlight and a light rain that evening that plunged the countryside into total darkness and thick, swampy forest conditions, Booth and Harold didn't actually make it to Mudd's house until about 4 a.m. Dr. Mudd lets him in, examines Booth, sets his broken leg, uh, his broken ankle, puts him to rest in an upstairs bedroom. And there's a common misconception that because he treated Booth's leg, Mudd's life would be ruined and that he would never be allowed to be a doctor again and that, you know, he is the origin of the phrase, your name is Mud, as in your reputation is, is ruined. And actually, that's a bunch of bullshit. Uh, the phrase, if you look into etymo- etymological records, first showed up in written record in 1823 in Britain. So different country over four decades before this Dr. Mud treated Booth. And also, uh, Dr. Mud later in life, after being uh, caught in connection to Booth, after getting out of a uh, uh, jail or prison, would resume a medical practice and actually become a successful landowner again. Uh, as Booth slept, word of what he and his accomplices had done spread throughout Washington, D.C. on April 15th. The rumors spiraled out of control. People hearing that Booth and others had killed multiple politicians. They heard the Confederate Army was coming into the city and the war was still on. People were afraid to go to sleep that night, fearing Confederate forces would come and ransack and burn the city to the ground. Uh, inside the Peterson house, Lincoln is fading in the early morning. His, his breathing's becoming erratic and labored. And then at 7.22 a.m., April 15th, the Surgeon General pronounces the president dead. Secretary of War Stanton says, now he belongs to the ages. Telegraphs reach every major news outlet in the nation early that morning. By that evening, the assassination is obviously the headline in every paper in the country. And no one grieves more than the nation's newly freed African-Americans. Many of them fear that the Emancipation Proclamation would now be revoked and that slavery could possibly be reinstituted. By noon, Vice President Andrew Johnson has been sworn in as president. Union soldiers in the last few fields of battle are not told of the assassination for several days for fear of retribution against Southerners. Shock and mourning quickly turning into rage against the South. Anyone in the North known to have Southern sympathies are advised to stay indoors with their shutters locked. Vigilantes surrounded jail in Washington, D.C., demand that Confederate prisoners be released to the angry mob. Other angry mobs show up in cities around the nation. Roughly 200 people are murdered in the streets of various American towns and cities in the few days following Lincoln's assassination in moments of rage. John's brother, Edwin Booth, hires armed guards and stations them outside his New York home to protect him and his family. Edwin also wrote their sister, Asia, uh, think no more of him as your brother. He is dead to us now. And as, as he soon must be to all the world. Federal agents raid Asia's home, find a manifesto written by John that he'd ask her to keep safe. 
uh, contain stuff like, Right or wrong, God judges me, not man. For four years, I've waited, hoped, and prayed for the dark clouds to break. To wait longer would be a crime. God's will be done. I go to see and share the bitter end. I mean, the dude thinks himself as an instrument of God right now, working on behalf of the people, uh, which is never a good place to go to mentally. <laughs> uh, well, not not for these dark kind of, you know, goals, I guess. Okay, meanwhile, back at Dr. Mudd's house in the afternoon of the 15th, Dr. Mudd orders Booth and Harold to get out of his house, uh, realizing the danger they put him in and put his family in. He, he's, he's likely uh, aware of the, of the prior kidnapping plot, but possibly totally unaware of the murder plot. Uh, Booth and Harold head into a nearby swamp, wander around the dark for several hours, finally make it to the cabin of a known Confederate sympathizer, Thomas Jones, agent of the Confederate underground, and Jones directs them to a thicket of pine trees on his property where they can hide and where they can crash for the night. On the morning of the 16th, the day after Lincoln's death, Easter Sunday, Booth and Harold are awakened by Thomas Jones whistling. He wakes them, tells them that they have to stay in the pine thicket. He says Union troops are crawling all over the countryside. And that he won't be able to get past them and that, uh, you know, or they won't be able to. And they have to wait it out, wait, wait for things to die down a little bit. Uh, he tells them that when there's a safe moment, he'll come back and he'll guide them to a better location. To keep their horses from giving away the position, Harold takes them into the swamp just outside the pine thicket. And when there are no soldiers nearby, shoots them and uh, lets their bodies fall into the murky swamp water where they won't be found. Booth asks Jones to bring him newspapers to see how the country's reacting to what he's done. And when he reads them, he's fucking stunned. He honestly cannot believe the nation's mad at him. This is how delusional he'd gotten. He thought he would be seen as the man who liberated the nation from the authoritarian, corrupt grasp of a tyrant. Instead, he's portrayed as a disgusting coward who has killed a national treasure. Shot him in the back. Shot him in front of his, you know, his wife like an animal. This was not what he's hoping for. Uh, again, amazing how delusional people can become. How we can just weave our own realities and how we can stray so much farther from the general consensus of what reality is than most people. Uh, every paper in cities both north and south of Mason-Dixon line vilify Booth. He feels betrayed by his country. Man, even the southern papers are like, dude, fucking, what the hell? He thought he'd be seen as the American Brutus. No, he's not seen as a patriot. He's seen as a treasonous dog. Booth was carrying a little pocket notebook and uh, like a little diary, and he began to write down his reaction to the public's perception of him and his justifications for what he'd done. Uh, writing, I struck boldly, and not as the papers say. I walked with a firm step. Through a thousand of his friends, I was stopped but pushed on. I passed all his pickets, rode 60 miles that night with the bones of my leg tearing my flesh with every jump. I can never repent it. Our country owed all her troubles to him, and God simply made me the instrument of his punishment. Ah, man, he's all in mentally. Meanwhile, on uh, Easter Sunday elsewhere, churches across America swelled to the rafters to mourn Lincoln. Lincoln is compared to Christ from Maine to California, by pastors and priests and preachers telling their congregations that just like Christ had died to save man's souls, Lincoln had died to save the Union. Lincoln had been shot on Good Friday. He'd taken on man's burdens and been essentially crucified for it. And so the deification of Lincoln begins. And again, you know, he was not universally liked during his life at all. But now in death, he becomes larger than ever, you know, than he'd ever been in life. Millions who had hated him days earlier, you know, many of them now had, had softened. Those who hadn't softened their position had to keep quiet because you could literally get killed if you spoke poorly of him now. Uh, I'm sure a lot of Southerners did did uh, praise Booth in private, but it's not going to reach him. You know, one Southern woman in a diary written shortly after Lincoln's death said, This blow to our enemies comes like a gleam of light. We have suffered till we feel savage. Our hated enemy has met the just reward of his life. Well, days go by and Booth is still not arrested. People are being arrested in cities across America for looking like Booth. 
Uh, rumors are spreading about all kinds of things. He's in this city. He's in that city. He's hiding here. He's hiding there. He's disguised as a woman, all kinds of stuff. Then on April 17th, soldiers acting on a tip raid Mary Surratt's boarding house in Washington, D.C. They question Mary. Uh, and then Lewis Powell, Secretary of State Seward's would-be assassin, shows up at the wrong time. Powell had been hiding around the city for days. Right, Powell, remember when, uh, when, the, when the dude didn't have his horse, uh, when the other conspirator wasn't ready there with the horses, he didn't know where to fucking escape. He doesn't actually know the city that well, and he's been wandering for days. Doesn't know where else to go, and he picks the worst time ever to show up at Mary's house. Investigators who have been told of his description, they recognize him, and he's arrested immediately. Uh, tipped off by a letter discovered in Booth's hotel room, investigators also arrest his two, two childhood friends and, and conspirators, Michael O'Loughlin and Samuel Arnold. On April 20th, they also arrest George Azeroth at his cousin's farm after he's overheard uh, boasting uh, of, the, of his partition in the conspiracy like the drunk idiot he was. However, both uh, Booth and Harold are still free, and no one knows where they are. And then the War Department puts out the largest reward that had been ever offered for anyone's capture, $100,000. That's roughly $1.5 million in today's dollars. A lot of money. And then the largest manhunt in American history, of course, follows. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's enough money to convince a lot of Southerners to want to turn him in. Thousands of soldiers who know, uh, who knows how many additional citizens now combing the Maryland countryside to find both Booth and Harold. Well, the night of April 21st, a full week after the shooting at Fort Theater, Thomas Jones, uh, that Confederate underground sympathy, you know, uh, member, feels like the coast is clear enough to attempt to smuggle Booth and Harold across the Potomac and out of Maryland. They make it several miles from the Pine Thicket to Jones Farm and are headed to the nearby river. They reach a bluff overlooking a crossing point of the river. Jones puts two of them in a boat. Gives them a compass, uh, tells them what compass you know points to follow to make it to a safe landing spot on the other side. Pushes them out into the water, and uh, and Booth had to do, uh, or all he had to do, was make it across the Potomac that night, and, and then you know he'd be in Virginia, and then he might make it to the deep south where he you know could uh, possibly hide out among sympathizers. But but he and Harold <laughs> they rode the wrong way, they fuck up. Instead of rowing west across the river, they row northwest, and eventually they just end up back uh, on the Maryland side of the river in the morning of the 22nd, like early in the morning. Booth would write again in his diary, With every man's hand against me, I am here in despair. And why? For doing what Brutus was honored for. And yet I, for striking down a greater tyrant than they ever knew, am looked upon as a common cutthroat. Also, on April 21st, train leaves Washington, D.C. with the remains of Abraham Lincoln. It'll travel all over the country, eventually arriving in Springfield, Illinois, uh, so citizens can mourn and pay their respects, and millions do just that, standing in line for miles, standing uh, lined up along the tracks in between stops, you know, just to just to watch his casket roll by and pay their respects. Uh, when dawn breaks on April on the on the twenty second, uh, Harold realizes he and Booth are back in Maryland. Uh, luckily, he knows the train, and they're able to make it to the farm of another another Confederate sympathizer, who leads them to his son-in-law, Confederate Colonel John J. Hughes, who provides the fugitives with food and a hideout until nightfall. And then it's going to help them try to get across the river a second time into Virginia. During the middle of the night, in the early morning of the 23rd, Booth and Harold row, row, row their boat to the Virginia shore. They make contact with Thomas Harbin, who Booth had previously met while planning his earlier kidnapping plot. Harbin took Booth and Harold to another Confederate agent in the area named William Bryant, who supplied him with horses. And then they were then led uh, to a farm belonging to Richard Garrett, who living out in the country uh, in the days before phones and the internet still didn't know that Lincoln had been killed. Uh, he's partly in the dark because the Confederate mail system had collapsed with the fall of the South, and, and mail had not been restored and integrated with the new Union system. Uh, Booth and Harold introduced to Garrett under fake names, told their, their uh, uh, this farmers told him, was told that they're Confederate soldiers returning home from the Battle of Petersburg, where Booth claimed to have been wounded. 
Finally, on the night of April 25th, a detachment of 26 Union soldiers led by intelligence officer Lieutenant Colonel Everton Conger find out where Booth is hiding. Almost two full weeks after shooting Lincoln, they interrogate uh, a man named William Jett, a former Confederate cavalry, uh, cavalry private who, who had helped take Booth and, Her- and Harold to Garrett's farm. Early in the morning of the 26th, around 2 a.m., the Union soldiers, Conger, his men, uh, they, uh, they arrive at the Garrett farm. Booth and Harold are sleeping in an old tobacco barn on the property. Booth and Harold hear their approach, quickly realize they're surrounded by Union cavalry. Uh, David Harold tells Booth uh, he wants out and surrenders. Booth, meanwhile, has no plans to surrender. He actually tells Conger to take his men back away from the barn so he can come out for a fair fight. A- ask him for a shootout. I love it. Making demands when you're surrounded and you have no hostages. <laughs> when has that ever worked out? I love that he even tried to do that. You want me to come out, Conger? Ha! I bet you do. So you and all those guys surrounding this barn can shoot me? No, sir. I'm not going to let that happen. I will offer you this instead, and this is my final offer. You have all your men go away, and then you and I, two of us, can shoot it out. How does that sound? How does, how does needlessly risking your life when you clearly have the upper hand sound? I will not make this offer again. Again, it's your last chance to do something really, really stupid that is unnecessary on any level for you to, uh, to easily accomplish your mission. You know, Conger, you know, obviously declines. 3 a.m. with Booth still refusing to come out. Conger orders the barn to be set on fire. Uh, lit up from the flames, Booth would then uh, be seen standing in the center of the barn, rifle in one hand, revolver in another. He suddenly throws down his rifle, lets his crutches fall. Remember, he's still, he's at busted leg. Raises his revolver up, makes a, makes a run, a hobbling run for the door. Before he can get outside, even though no order to fire has been given, a Union officer named Boston Corbett fires his rifle, hits Booth in the neck, severs his spinal cord. Conger, thinking Booth's dead at first, realizes he's paralyzed but still alive when he rushes over. He can see Booth moving his mouth. Can't quite hear what he's saying. He's just barely able to get any sound out. He leans down, and he's able to hear Booth say, Tell Mother I died for my country. He had Booth's body dragged out from the burning barn. A few moments later, Booth asked to have his hands lifted so he can see him and utters his famous last words, Useless. Useless. His hands had accomplished nothing. The North had won, and now he was dead. All of his conspirators, however, are still alive, and they all face a military trial for their roles in Lincoln's death, the attack on Secretary of State Seward, and the plot to kill Johnson. And all of this takes us out of today's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. All right, let's talk about those poor, unlucky co-conspirators. Why do I sound lucky? They chose to do this shit. Uh, Davy Harold, George Azarot, Lewis Powell, all sentenced to death for their roles in Booth's plots. Azarot has to be especially pissed. But I, but I didn't. I decided not to. The last second, I got drunk and didn't. Well, he's still going to die, fucker. Uh, Booth's landlady, Mary Surratt, uh, may have only had knowledge of the kidnapping plan. She's also sentenced to death. Childhood friends Michael O'Loughlin, Sam Arnold, and the infamous Dr. Med, Mudd are uh, not sentenced to death. Uh, they are sentenced to life in prison under hard labor. Um, again, the, the reasoning being that they, uh, they could have thought it was a, a kidnapping, not a murder plot. Uh, July 7th, 1865, in the grounds of the Arsenal Prison in Washington, D.C., Harold Azarot Powell, Mary Surratt, led up 13 steps to the, uh, to the gallows, hoods placed over their heads, ropes placed around their necks, and then an executioner claps three times, you know, the signal for the floor to give way beneath their feet. And then they hang to death. Uh, the other conspirator, Mary's son, John Surratt, avoids capture, flees to Canada, and then to Europe. Eventually, he's captured two years later in, in Egypt, 1867. 
and then and then put on trial in Maryland for his involvement in Lincoln's assassination. And and he was excuse me, he was lucky enough to be tried by a civilian court, not a military court. He claimed he knew nothing about the murder plot, only the kidnapping plot. And after two months of testimony, he's released on a mistrial when eight jurors voted that he was uh, not guilty and forced it guilty. I think, you know, he benefited from the civilian trial because there is a lot of Southern sympathizers still. Uh, so it would know, be tough to convict him by, by jury. He lives as a free man until the age of 72, dying in 1916. Dr. Samuel Mudd imprisoned 70 miles west of Key West, Florida, and didn't even serve close to life in prison. He was pardoned a few years later in 1869 by President Johnson and released. He would die many years later, 1883. I guess not that many years, but enough years to have some more life. Uh, at the age of 49, after returning to medical practice, becoming, again, a successful landowner. Uh, again, so like, kind of like life resumes as it was before the war for him once he gets out. Samuel Arnold, also pardoned in 1869, would die in 1906 at the age of seven, uh, 72. Michael O'Loughlin, uh, he didn't make it to the pardon. He died in the in the, in the the prison with uh, with Mudd and Arnold in 1867 of a scarlet uh, – there was a scarlet fever outbreak. So, so what would have happened – if Lincoln hadn't been shot, I think that's the big mystery with his assassination. How different would life have been in the years following the end of the Civil War? We're going to look into that. Uh, you know, we're going to look into what some intelligent people think about that. But first, let's look at what some unintelligent people have to say with today's Idiots of the Internet. Idiots of the Internet. Yes. I watched a documentary in addition to reading articles and having research help this, uh, this go around to kind of get my head around this tale. And in the comment section under the, the documentary I watched, uh, Abraham Lincoln assassination documentary slash biography uh, uploaded by Crash Course America. I, I really did like it. Uh, <laughs> I found a troll exchange that just really made me laugh. I just <laughs> – I do love how riled people can get on the web. Uh, user, user Carbon Fiber Addict posts, I'm glad they shot old Abe. And, and then relishes the hate that comes next. Ron McNeil Jr. Fi- uh, first asked, how could you say such thing? Carbon Fiber asks, how do you get so butthurt? Uh, user Vinny Miss says, that really is some fucked up thing to say. He was a great heroic person. Carbon Fiber Addict comes back with, crybaby. Like he's just, he's just uh, you know, poking him with a stick. Uh, <laughs> another user accuses Carbon Fiber of getting mad. Uh, Carbon Fiber then says, I'm not mad. I find it fascinating making people like you reply to me. And then Thomas Paine asks, lonely much? To which Carbon Fiber replies, no, I'm happy. Why do you get so butthurt? It's like you're infected with stupid. <laughs> Tom Payne, Thomas Paine can't leave it alone. He just says, uh, saying, LOL, you being lonely doesn't make me butthurt, just kind of sad. And then Carbon Fiber says, Thomas Paine, what are you talking about? I'm literally at the lake with my son, talking to the man next to us, LOL. It actually seems you're getting frustrated because you can't get a rise out of me. And then the little, like, goofy uh, tongue-out face or emoticon kind of thing. Um, uh, not getting much action as a lake. That's why I checked my notifications, smiley face. <laughs> Thomas Paine then says, that's the loneliest thing I've ever heard. To which Carbon Fiber says, fishing? Thomas Paine says, no, no, no. Fishing with your son sounds like a cool time. It's just weird you had to tell me about it. I, lo- I love how this is just evolving into, like, a <laughs> to like a weird casual conversation. Like, it starts off, like, you know, being angry about a Lincoln comment. And now it's just like, no, 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 fishing's cool. I mean, I like that you're spending time with your son. But I just I just wonder why you'd have to say the mean thing in the first place. Uh, Carbon Fiber says, uh, Thomas Paine, I'm just proving the point that your claim I'm lonely is stupid. You said that strictly because your butt hurt over my joking post. <laughs> And then user X says, you seem to have the need to constantly reinforce the fact that you're not butthurt, you're not lonely, and that you're really this happy, confident person who lives a great life. Most people who are actually like this 
don't have the immaturity or the time to troll on YouTube comments. Nor would they gloat about it over and over again on the internet. Admit it. You have a shitty life. Like, I love how they're just, <laughs> like, he, they're, they've fallen right into his plan. He just keeps fucking riling them. And then they, I don't know what they expect. Like, like it's like they expect him eventually to be like, okay, you guys, I'm not fishing. I'm not, I'm not fished at the lake. I, uh, I don't, I don't have a son. <sighs> I'm 40, I'm 43 and I, li- and I live with my parents. And I haven't had a girlfriend since uh, 2002. And look, this is all I got. Riling up people under Abraham Lincoln videos is all I have. And I'm sorry, you guys. I'm sorry. No. Uh, Carbon Fiber just says, uh, that's why I'm such a grand troll. I admit I'm a troll. (laughs) And still idiots flock to this comment to try and make a point when they can't deduce any information about me aside that I'm a troll with such little effort. And then also adds, I'm on break at work right now. LOL. He just, he just constantly is trying to like, you know, just fuck with them. Yeah, not fishing. I'm, I'm going to break at work. Oh, okay. So I just thought that was fun. And then I found uh, a real true idiot of the internet uh, who shows up. This shit will never cease to amaze me, just what people believe. This is uh, uh, a user, uh, time for illumination. When you have a, a handle like time for illumination, you know when you see that some strong wackadoodle shit is coming forth. <laughs> he posts... Good for black Americans that he was shot. If you read history, you know that he planned and was taking actions to deport freed slaves to South America and Africa, going to their homeland with fruits of religion and civilization. And that's nonsense. That is pure nonsensical web lore based on half-truths and full-on lies. Yes, there was talks of, like, you know, possible relocation programs by a variety of people, including Lincoln on some level, but no, like, forced relocation program that was just, you know, like uh, it would be nice to provide them with the option if they don't like, you know, for someone like Lincoln. Uh, a, a variety of credible historians have stated there's no basis for what he just posted. And, and, and that's pretty dumb, right? Well, then I find somebody, uh, oh, my God, who takes it so much further, takes it so much further than time for illumination. This, this made my It Is to the Internet segment day. Uh, I found dead skin producer slash DJ. Uh, and on the wackadoodle scale. If time for illumination possesses, you know, maybe like 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 a little bit below an Alex Jones level of wackadoodleness, Deadskin producer D possibly moves the needle past David Icke. Because uh, check out this post. He says he was not assassinated. He was an ancient occultist. Did his work for the deep state. The families made a pact with them to leave them. New bank for them. With war, he will. The the, gram- the grammar is so bad. It's it's truly hard to even figure out what he's saying half the time. Them new bank for them with the war he will lead. They will leave him alone to spend his last years in privacy, secured, undisturbed. He was an occultist that leaves Aleister Crowley in shame compared to knowledge he had about occult ancient Babylonian knowledge. That is why he has a monument. The bank paid for it. Oh, that's how he got the Lincoln Monument. Okay. Of, of course, they don't pay anything, but figuratively said JFK. Now, he was killed for taking power from CIA i.e. the bank. The bank is always capitalized, by the way. CIA, private detective of the bank and black royalty family. It's obvious as kids' insults on YouTube comment. So don't show yourself as 15-year-old ignorant kid not having critical mind or anything to say that provides something more than what is said in video or propaganda, be it news, video, and... (laughs) Other, every other kind of mind control. If you don't know, you are instructed. I like to think this is how he talks. And indoctrinated what to think. 
You don't know anything. Lincoln was not killed. <laughs> By the way, there's like, it's just a, a shitload of like commas. Every once in a while, like a random period, but mostly just so many commas. Lincoln was not killed. It is not first or last fake death in human history. It's no conspiracy. Who doesn't know about the bank? That private bank. Only thing debatable here is did he fake his death or not? And I think he did, since it liked George Bush being killed. What? George Bush wasn't killed. Why he made war, earned a shitload of money to bank and military, same as Lincoln. Why would kill him? Is there a reasonable explanation? When he says this war is eating my life, he means I will die after war. Read between lines. (laughs) As the man you know, I will die for you, not for me, is obvious to me. Completely. Utterly. Obvious. Whew. Uh, what? What? What do you think? What do you think? Deadskin producer does for work, by the way. Like, do you think he's like a professor or a surgeon, or do you think he's unemployed? God, what? What if he actually is a surgeon? How scary is that? He make he makes me single handedly want to go back to school. Not joking. Uh, sometimes doing this edit to the internet segment, I, it just honestly makes me wish I had time just to get some online courses and just go back to school. Like one day when I do have time, I really do want to go back to school. Uh, shit like this is just such a reminder of how important education is, right? Uh, it's part of why we do this, isn't it? Hail Nimrod, protect us from this madness. Lucifina, I know you distract us from time to time, cause some mischief, but please let us, you know, not become as deluded as this ignorant uh, poster, my God. The scariest part of posts like this to me is the arrogance. Not only do they think they're right, they think they're obviously right. And if you don't see that, you are idiot. I was talking with one of the servers at the Dayton, Ohio Funny Bone this past Saturday night. And uh, he he uh, went to school with this guy. Well, actually, no, I'm sorry. He worked with this guy after school. He, he the server had a history degree. And this, uh, and this guy he was working with found out about it and then like made fun of him for buying into the system. And this guy was like a flat earther, uh, a believer in like the lizard Illuminati, all that crazy shit, and it would make fun of people who went on to higher education because like they get so deluded in their crazy ass fucking conspiracy nutheads that they think getting an education is just you know AKA being indoctrinated into the the dark system. What a terrible rationaliz- is rationalization just to be uneducated. You know I don't get it, man. When, when I meet somebody who's clearly more educated than I am, like in some area of academia. Uh, which, which happens often. You know what I do? I fucking talk less and I listen more. Like I try to defer to their expertise and I trust that they're going to know stuff uh, that I don't and I'll be able to learn something from them. But some people, like this fucking producer guy, uh, have such fragile egos they can't handle that. They they have to know everything. Uh, I can't fucking stand that personality type. If you're a know-it-all type, uh, odds are you don't know very much. In my experience, it's usually the quiet, more humble people that know the most. So shut the fuck up and learn something. I'm talking to you, dead skin producer. As if there is a snowball's chance in hell you listen to this podcast. Ah, okay, I feel better now. I feel good. Uh, I feel like a good way to get out of this week's Idiots of the Internet. Idiots of the Internet. internet. All right. So what would have happened if Lincoln lived? A lot of historians think uh, everyone would be rich. Uh, disease would no longer exist. Uh, donuts would now give you six-pack abs. No one would work more than four hours a week, and orgasms would always be both powerful and invigorating and come in at least, uh, you know, uh, groups of three. Hail Nimrod! Hail Lucifina! Hail, hail Lincoln! No. Uh, it's hard to say how things would have uh, differed. Obviously, it's pure speculation, but speculation informed by knowledgeable Lincoln historians. Let's start with voting rights. 
for recently freed slaves. Uh, would Lincoln have protected it? Uh, you know, for at least the dudes. Sorry, ladies. Uh, fucking patriarchal history. There's no escaping it. No matter what, you wouldn't have gotten to vote until a while later. Uh, most likely he would have. He probably would have done more to try and quell the violence against recently freed men and women that broke out after the war than his successor Johnson did. However, things didn't really turn back against recently freed African-Americans until the 1870s, you know, when Lincoln would have been done with his second term anyway. So that's, that, that's when Southerners really began to intimidate African-Americans at the polls, organizing lynchings, enacting the very beginnings of the Jim Crow kind of laws that would come up later. Uh, so Lincoln would have not been able to stop any of that. Um, and history would have, you know, possibly run, run his course the same way. But uh, Lincoln may have been able to alter the, uh, the cultural climate of the American West. On the day he died, he wrote to the Speaker of the House, Schuyler, uh, or Schuyler Colfax, that he planned to point Union veterans to the gold and silver that waits for them in the West. Now, of course, this was happening anyway, you know, but that from like the Donner Party suck. But, uh, but tying this to voting rights, Lincoln approved the Homestead Act of 1862, which allowed for basically anyone, any men to claim land as long as they planned to tend it for five years. The same day he signed the Emancipation Proclamation, it's likely he wanted to extend West Coast settlement opportunities uh, formally to African-Americans. Johnson would deny a petition that called for public lands in like Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, and Arkansas to be distributed to African-Americans, making it harder for them to attain land. There's a good chance Lincoln would have not made that difficult. He would have, uh, you know, uh, given, them, given them new legislation to really kind of help them settle and become landowners. And while I said earlier that Lincoln would obviously have been able to, uh, unable to stop what happened in the 1870s, he, he could have changed the end of the 1860s enough to perhaps prevent or at least slow down some of what would happen in the 1870s in regards to racial oppression. You know, Lincoln proclaimed that he wanted malice towards none and charity for all, which he stuck to, as he did not hunt down the leaders of the Confederacy right before he died. Yet he favored having the Confederates leave for exile, saying, open the gates, let down the gates, scare them off. As opposed to that, President Johnson welcomed the Confederates uh, back into the government with open arms. Alexander Stevens, former Confederate vice president, was pardoned by Johnson, then elected by the Georgia legislature to the Senate. Herschel Johnson, who had sat in the Confederate Congress, was elected to other, uh, the other Georgia Senate seat. And the House of Representatives, Cullen Battle, until recently, Confederate general, showed up to represent Alabama. William T. Wofford, com uh, he commanded a Confederate brigade at Gettysburg, uh, showed up in the Georgia government. Two of Virginia's eight representatives had been members of the state secession convention in 1861. And predictably, this restoration of white power was attended by an upsurge of mob violence against freed slaves. You know, uh, you have doubtless heard a great deal of the reconstructed South of their acceptance of the results of the war, wrote a freedman's bureau agent in South Carolina. This may all be true, but if a man had the list of Negroes murdered in a single county in this most loyal and Christian state, he would think it a strange way of demonstrating his kindly feelings towards them. Under Johnson, basically everyone who was involved in the Confederacy was quickly allowed back into the Union government, and you can bet they hadn't changed their minds on slavery or racism. Of course, this wouldn't have changed entirely under Lincoln, but he likely would have done something to prevent this from happening. Uh, African Americans badly needed a supporter in the government in the years following the Civil War, and they didn't really get that with Andrew Johnson. They would have had that with Lincoln. But we'll never know how much Lincoln, you know, would have been able to accomplish because, you know, some dumb pretty boy actor fucked that up before dying just outside a, a burning tobacco barn with those worthless hands of his. Worthless. Worthless. Time for today's Top 5 Takeaways. Time suck. Top 5 Takeaways. Number one. John Wilkes Booth was a famous actor from a famous acting family, the most famous American acting family of the 19th century. You may uh, uh, read about his career being slowed down in the year before he killed Lincoln, but only because he became obsessed with Lincoln 
and lost interest in actually acting as much as he had before. He's still widely known and admired. Number two, before putting together a plan to kill Lincoln, Booth put together plans to kidnap him, which included tying him up and lowering him from a balcony to the stage in the dark, which, which sounds like something that would happen in an old-timey cartoon where a mustachioed villain ties a damsel to some train tracks. Number three, despite breaking his ankle directly after shooting Lincoln, Booth got up and actually escaped. And he almost completely escaped. Uh, if he hadn't broken his leg, he would have been able to, uh, he'd been able to ride faster, you know, further, could have disappeared in the deep south, possibly into Mexico, beyond after that. If Ryan Gosling or Ryan Reynolds or Jamie Foxx or somebody, you know, tries killing the president today, uh, they're not making it out of the room. Whatever room they find the gun in, that's where they're arrested. Man, crime, so much easier in the old days. Number four, Dr. Samuel Mudd, the man who had set Booth's broken leg, did not have his life fall into ruin, as the internet will have us believe. Uh, he was sent to prison, but was pardoned after serving less than five years and then went right back to doctoring and to being a, a, a well-to-do landowner. Whiskey, laudanum, sal. Uh, if your name is Mudd, you know that has nothing to do now uh, with Dr. Samuel Mudd. That phrase. Uh, number five, new info, crazy story I found about what happened to Lincoln's theater guest the night he got shot, that Cor- Corporal Henry Rathbone. All right. Remember the guy that Booth slashed from shoulder to elbow directly after Lincoln, you know, was shot? He and his fiance were in the box, you know, with Lincoln and his wife, Mary Todd. Uh, well, his body fully recovered from Booth's attack, but his mind did not. He blamed himself for failing to stop Booth. He, did, he married Clara, the other guest, there two years later. And to say their marriage didn't have a happy ending would be the understatement of the year. Rasbone mind deteriorated to the point that on December 23rd, 1883, he decided to celebrate the holidays uh, by trying to murder his entire family. Seriously, while serving as a U.S. consul in Hanover, Germany, Rathbone tried to kill his three kids. His wife was able to intervene. She tried to stop him, and then he fatally shot and stabbed her and then tried to kill himself, stabbed himself five times in the chest. When the police arrived, they found Rathbone covered in blood and completely out of his mind. According to a widely repeated but not unconfirmed, or excuse me, but unconfirmed report, he claimed that there were people hiding behind the pictures on his wall. He was declared not guilty of his wife's murder by reason of insanity, and he was very insane. He spent the rest of his life in an asylum where he complained of secret machines inside the walls blowing gas into his room to give him headaches. Uh, He died in 1911, the final casualty of the Lincoln assassination nearly half a century after it occurred. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Assassination Lincoln sucks, you suckers. You glorious knowledge-seeking meat sacks, you lovers of strange, dark, weird, interesting, and the true. Uh, big thanks to the Time Suck team once again, man. High Priestess, the Suck Harmony Villacamp, Jesse Dobner, Paladin of Punctuation. Jesse's not sold it on that title, by the way. If you have any suggestions, you know, send it in uh, for, for the editor of the Suck. Thanks to the Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley. Thanks to the uh, Time Suck High Priest, Alex Dugan, the Bit Elixir team, Danger Brain, Eric Radiger, Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins. She keeps everything moving, constantly trying to, to force me to be more organized. I'm working on it. Special thanks to OG Bo Jangles Research Department intern, Sophie Fact Sorceress Evans. Her idea for this topic, and I hope, it, uh, I hope we uh, did it justice. I uh, want to meet some fellow Time Suckers. Join that private Facebook group. Uh, more and more people are hopping in there as we continue to beta test uh, new app features and uh, working towards our own message board, which we're doing. Stuff just, you know, just takes a while. All those little lines of code that got to be put in. Uh, if you want to follow me on Instagram, just because sometimes I post fi- uh, fun, silly stuff, it's at Dan Cummins Comedy. Uh, at Time Suck, you know, is the uh, is the podcast handle. I didn't write that down, and now I'm confused. I think it's uh, – now I got to look it up. As I'm talking to you, the Instagram handle for, uh, for Time Suck 
is, yeah, Time Suck Podcast. Okay, it's a bonus week, and uh, we're really going into a different direction on Friday. We're going to suck on some werewolves. Seriously, I, I can't wait. I love this kind of shit. Where did the mythology of werewolves begin? Do people still believe in werewolves? You know they do. There are werewolf hunters out there right now. Are you, are you kidding me? Uh, are there any historical examples of werewolf sightings? You know, why wolves? Why not werecats? Were possums? Were badgers? Were squirrels? Were weasels? Were fucking coons? Were chipmunks? Uh, it's just going to get weird. I'm pumped. I love monster mythology. And I love hearing from you guys. So let's check in with what you have to say on this week's Time Sucker Updates. All right, starting off with a very interesting update regarding someone I talked about uh, in the Toy Box Killer Suck. Super Sucker, Adrian Studeway, did some digging into the murderer who lived near me growing up that I referenced that episode in Riggins, Idaho. She wrote in saying, listening to the Toy Box Killer episode and my Google foo went apeshit and found this. Dot, dot, dot. And then she provides me with an article link um, uh, about this lady who, who, who lived around me as a kid. She says, I'm pretty sure this is a neighbor you referenced who was arrested for violating her parole from Texas. Creepy, huh? Speaking of not knowing your neighbors, my neighbor from my childhood home in Mississippi was just arrested for murder and attempted murder. He stabbed his mom to death, tried to kill his dad, but his two younger brothers were able to wrestle him to the ground. Man, they were all homeschooled. Luckily, they, luckily they wrestled him. Luckily, they take a Chikatilo wrestling academy and wrestle father to ground to prevent. Sometimes Chikatilo do good. Uh, this ad is bananas, Adrian. Uh, man, crazy about your neighbor. It is it is so shocking when it, when it, when we find out something about somebody you've you've at least uh, you know seen or met. I mean, it really is is just like oh shit that, that that actually that stuff does happen. It's not just weird shit I read about. And, and yeah, the lady uh, who you found on the web is the woman who lived down the street from uh, a few houses from me. Man, good job on your detective work. Uh, I want to read you guys just a quick excerpt from that article. Uh, it says uh, this is from 1955. It says famous Houston attorney Percy Foreman held a news conference at the Galveston State Psychiatric Hospital on March 25th, 1955, to announce he had agreed to defend Ann Williams in her upcoming murder trials. I don't think she's sound of mind now, and I don't think she was sane then, he told reporters. It's not a natural mother's act. A Galveston County grand jury indicted Williams on two counts of murder almost exactly one month after she buried the dismembered bodies of her two sons, young sons, behind an Algoa auto shop. Although Williams confessed to killing nine-year-old Calvin and eight-year-old Conrad about five hours after her arrest, she recanted that admission just a few days after the indictments. Whew. Uh, Williams, a 28-year-old five-and-dime store clerk, alternately described in news accounts as attractive and comely, initially said she strangled the boys to stop the suffering they endured from their classmates teasing. What the fuck? Uh, she also said she didn't want to see them grow up in poverty. But after spending a few weeks in jail and at the Galveston State Psychiatric Hospital, she began to blame the murders on a junkie drug dealer who sent her away from her Pasadena trailer and killed the boys in her absence. Now, the article doesn't say what I thought was the kids have been like hammered to death, I guess strangled, I heard for some reason. And uh, it does say they've been dismembered. I did hear they were cut up in the bathtub. Uh, my grandma Betty told me that they, you know, they were, that the lie was poured over them then in the bathtub. And my grandma Betty, uh, I just talked to her about this yesterday to ask her, and she reminded me that in Riggin, she was known as Lori Allen. And uh, yeah, uh, my grandma said that also... I thought two elderly men had died while dating her in Riggins. No, three. All three elderly men uh, who had dated her, one who married her, give her the last name of Alan, uh, died while, while they were with her. Jeez. Uh, crazy. And, and, then the, and then the bodies weren't ever – one family did think about having one of the bodies exhumed to, uh, to do like a post-mortem autopsy or whatever 
to try and figure out if they were in fact poisoned or something, but then they didn't have the money to do it. And we're kind of like, well, what's the point? She's back in jail anyway. Uh, insane though, this woman who lived down the street uh, in her senior years for me was, uh, who was my great, great uncle's girlfriend, did all that shit. Okay. Now for some, uh, so thank you. Thank you very much for sending in that amazing update, Adrian. Uh, I love it. Now for some constructive criticism from time sucker, Charles Overstreet, who writes to whom it may can suck. Well, well done. I like that. Dear Maestro Sucko, I've been listening for a while now. I put a sizable dent in the list of previous topics. I've been a fan. I've been a longtime fan of your comedy and finally gave the suck a try. I was immediately hooked. I was blown away by how well-researched it was, how objective you remain, and loved the random comic tangents. During some of the darker episodes, it is well needed for a bit of comic relief during the course of a horrific timeline. I spoke to my wife about the suck several times to the point that I'm sure she was tired of hearing my rantings. One night she gave in. We listened to one together. The next day I came home for lunch only to find she was halfway through her third. Suffice to say, she too was hooked and maybe we'll now stay together. As the saying goes, you know, because we now suck together. That's right. A couple of sucks together stays together. My one bit of criticism, my one bit of constructive criticism, which I know you will take very well, you always do, is that you sometimes have a tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater, uh, so to speak, on certain subjects. For example, uh, crystallology. This is a topic that does hold some scientific grounds based on the ability of crystals to harness and hold energy. Even our current computer technology is based on the ability of silicon crystals to store information and their ability to condense energy for lasers. The problem is that a lot of new age people have taken the minimal scientific data and created a wealth of ridiculousness to surround it. For one more example, meant to keep this brief, but it ate me up since I heard it. During the Mandela episode, you dismissed the scientific credibility of Fred Allen Wolf based on the fact that he is known as Dr. Quantum. Wolf is actually a very well-known quantum physicist and no credible scientist would ever denote his merit. Dr. Quantum has become his nickname because of his career goal of making quantum physics easily digestible to readers who are not physicists. What you did was on par with saying, don't believe things that Bill Nye says because he can't be a credible scientist if he's known as the science guy. Oh, to be a fly on the wall if Wolf and Neil deGrasse Tyson ever got together for a discussion. Thank you for entertaining me in this message that turned out much longer than planned. I would place an apology here, but you always make note that it is not an issue when people uh, send these in. No, it absolutely is not an issue, man. Thank you, Charles. You're absolutely right. And you know what? You are absolutely right. I do need to be more discerning when it comes to what I say about people and ideas who, who uh, you know, I, I consider to be kind of like this, this wackadoodle mythology who, uh, you know, uh, who I think reference kind of wackadoodles. You know, when people start talking about crystals, I do immediately think of pseudoscientific horseshit. I immediately... Picture somebody like trying to heal me with some amethyst or trying to ward off evil spirits with topaz or quartz and some shit. And I do, I do know, I need to be reminded, that's not all too, that, that that world is. Yes, writing somebody off for a nickname is especially dumb for me since I don't have a history degree and I'm known as the master sucker. So that is extremely hypocritical for me to make fun of somebody like, oh, fucking okay, Dr. Quantum. Anyway, back to the master sucker. Ah, uh, yeah, I can be a jackass. Thank you for helping, uh, uh, you know, correct me, Charles. We, we all need that. It's funny. I know some of you don't like it uh, when I get teased or whatever. It's important, man. It really is. We got to stay humble. We got we to, gotta, you know, correct each other. Got a message that I should promote the secret suck more from Kyler. I fucking, I have no idea how to say your last name. Engine throne? Engine throne. Uh, Jesus Christ. Man, I'm hoping to get your last name. Uh, kind of, I, it doesn't even look like a name to me. I-N-G-E-N throne. Engine, engine throne. I don't know. Anyway, I can say your first name, Kyler. I'm a fan of that name. Greetings, Master Sucker, Kyler writes in. Just joined the secret suck, kicking myself for not joining earlier. Once I saw all the bonus content that I didn't even know I was missing, all I could say was, are you fucking kidding me? I'm at work when I listen to you, so I don't catch every word. But I can honestly say I had no idea how much secret suckers received for such a small contribution. 
This is just my two cents, but I think you need to pimp yourself a few more times per episode. You're worth it, Dan. <laughs> Sound like my uh, my wife right now. I have to tune out uh, of your podcast at least four or five times per episode to have a conversation at work. It might be a, a uncanny timing or the fact that you're not selling yourself as much as you could be. But I had no idea what I was missing. I'm sure there are suckers out there just like me. Push the Dan Cummins brand, man. You've worked hard to cultivate it. Let people know uh, more than once a show. Sorry for the long-winded message. Take it easy. P.S. I, I made a behind-the-bit station on Pandora. I'm a little disappointed. It's not more of you and Chad. Oh, man, thank you, Kyler. Uh, again, love, <laughs> thank you, Kyler, whatever your last name is. Uh, yeah, the behind-the-bit, uh, you know what? We didn't want to make it like I, I felt maybe this kind of speaks to what you're saying. It's funny. It's bad for me to self-promote. The guy, <laughs> the guy at Pandora was like, do you want us to include like a lot more of your bits? And I felt it was too much of Chad and I already. And so I was like, no, you just you know put in other people that you think are good that match us, uh, which probably is dumb of me. Uh, I'm trying to get better. I'm not a good self-promoter. Uh, used to be impossible for me to do it. I used to be on stage. I would feel like the hardest moment for me on stage was just to mention I was selling something after the show. I just felt like a, a dirtbag. But I do work pretty hard uh, trying to create a lot of engaging content. And, I, and I'm glad you like it. So glad you like it. And I am going to do a big Patreon push again here coming up. I got I to uh, create some new goals, uh, waiting on a few app revisions. And I know I, I probably don't need to, but I, I just want to get these new app things. I want to get this fact page up. Uh, I want to get some variable speed playback up. So I think it's you know even that much more marketable and, and usable and just fun. And and then uh, the fact page will make it so much easier when you guys have problems. You know, if there's any kind of like Patreon linking issues, any kind of app issues, I really want to have cool tutorials to make it fun for you to figure out how to do that. And then I'm going to promote, I promise. I appreciate you pushing me. Last update, uplifting one. I know this is a long episode, but uplifting WC update from uh, Cole Hansen. Cole writes, Westboro Baptist Church and the Patriot Guard. Long email, uh, but I pray to Nimrod you read this. Well, Nimrod heard you, Cole. Hail Nimrod. Lord General Suckmaster Esquire. This is a great update, by the way. This is this. I got a little emotional when I first read this one. I have been binge listening to your podcast for the past week, and holy shit, amazing. That's not the emotional part. Uh, that'd be super narcissistic of me. I have written in once before, but I really wanted to give you a little extra about the WBC that you could share to other listeners. I was, I'm born and raised in Derby, Kansas. Derby has an American Legion writer post, post four, where veterans have committed to continue to serve this country after they have left the military, but in a different way. The ALR gives back to the active duty soldiers and their families. Most of these men and women served during Vietnam when soldiers were not well respected, but they persevered because they loved this country and did what they thought kept freedom in our land. My grandfather, Craig Hansen, writer named uh, Bronco, LOL, uh, was a member and one of the reasons Kansas went from four ALR posts, 72 during his 20 years of membership before he passed away. Wow. Uh, Bronco was a co-founder also of the Patriot Guard. These old geezers meant business. One of Bronco's friends, Terry, was watching the news with his wife in the early 2000s, and his wife and him were furious at the WBC protests. And so were the other members, especially being from Kansas. So Bronco, Terry, Greg Hansen, no relation, and Steve McDonald bought brand new flags, put them on steel poles about eight feet tall, got other members to ride on their hogs to the funerals of soldiers who had died in our current battles or veterans who fought decades ago, but under the same oath. The idea grew in parallel to the WBC protests, Bronco and his brother started a nationwide revolt, a silent revolt. They now lead processions at military funerals and stand outside the chapel and line in the cemetery at the graveside service. I had the privilege to stand in 15-degree weather with these men and women at one of these at one of our family friends' funerals when I was 12, and I was hooked. Our own form of protesting the protesters. When Bronco passed away from a short battle with lung cancer in February this year, 
Our family learned from his friends the truth behind these stories because Bronco was too humble to praise himself the right the way he deserved. He inspired hundreds, if not thousands, of riders to continue to defend the men and women they promised to serve alongside. At Bronco's funeral, there were 250 motorcycles and 300 riders. They lined the chapel grounds, and it was the biggest funeral the mortuary and the Patriot Guard had ever been a part of. I thought this was an important story to tell, and hopefully you can maybe condense it and spread it out. I didn't condense it. I want to share the whole thing. Amazing people doing amazing shit. Uh, you are a man I know my grandfather would have loved because you accept everybody from the beginning just like he did, and you'll mark them off if they give you a reason just like he did. Throughout my days, I get choked up at the hole he left, but the laughter from your show and the acceptance you have been teaching me picked up where it needed to be in my life. Thank you, Mr. Cummins. You're changing lives week by week. Well, God damn it, man. Yeah, you made me tear up on a fucking plane. First time I read this. Uh, I'm honored, man. I'm honored. I, I, I'm not sure I'm 5% of the guy that your, your hero of a grandfather was, but I can honestly say I'm doing my best right now, man. He sounds like an amazing man. Served our country in war. Came back home, served it some more. I mean, you, you really don't get better than that. And, and then these WBC cocksuckers start shitting on fellow veteran brothers and sisters on the country he fought for. Not only did he, you know, uh, you know uh, counter their protests, he did it in a classier way than I probably could, man. He did it. He did it. He didn't just talk about it. He did it. And, he, and he's still touching lives now from the, from the next great plane out there beyond our comprehension. I hope you're listening. Hope you're listening, Bronco. If you are, man, if you see Nimrod, you hail him for me. And the rest of you, you think about this story. If you think your life or anyone's life doesn't matter for any reason, fucking sure does. Just one person can make a big difference. All right, man. Love you guys. Hail Nimrod. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Well, that's all until Thursday. You know, you uh, Thursday. Yeah, Thursday. Actually, yeah, that's all until Thursday. I got confused myself for a second. For you space lizards. And, and then I'll be back Friday for everybody. Tackling those werewolves. We're going to be howling at the moon, just, oh, how did that feel in your eardrums? Until then, don't try to kill the president, no matter what you think he's to blame for. It's not going to work out well for you. Uh, Booth couldn't get away with it in 1865. You're not going to get away with it now. And keep on sucking. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.